Hello, everyone. Thank you all uh, for bearing with us there for a moment. Apologies for the technical difficulties, as this is the first live stream we have ever done as a Reverb team. Uh, so we are uh, still trying to get some of the technical specs worked out ourselves. Uh, but it is great to see you all. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us here. And thanks for bearing with us uh, for the brief technical difficulties that we had right there at the beginning. Uh, so, uh, hey, Jen, there you are. Oh, Jen Lofren is in the chat. Thank you so much. It's great to see you too, Jen. Um, excellent. Well, hopefully they didn't. Uh, hopefully it didn't pick up all of the uh, tech difficulties that we had right there at the beginning. It uh, it might have. Um, so we might be on a little bit of a delay here, but that's okay. Um, all right. So uh, let's go ahead and just start out by introducing ourselves. Uh, first and foremost, welcome to the Reverb third anniversary uh, live stream celebration. We are the Reverb team and we are very happy that you are joining us now. Uh, so let's just go ahead and start with uh, Ben. Do you want to give yourself a little introduction here? Sure. I'm Ben Williams. I'm a PhD student at CMU in Literary and Cultural Studies. You know, I'm working on border rhetorics, and I joined the team last year, right right in the midst of the pandemic was one of the, the first episodes I've released with you all, and it's been, been quite the ride ever since. So absolutely glad we're to be here. We're thrilled to have you with us as well. Uh, next up, we have Sophie Wadzak. Sophie, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Sophie Wadzak. I started working on Reverb. I think we decided back in 2019 when I was still teaching at Carnegie Mellon. I taught writing at the English department. Um, I have since left Carnegie Mellon. I'm a research communication specialist for the Duolingo English test now, but luckily I still have time to be on Reverb and I'm happy that I'm here. We are so very thankful for that as well. Awesome. Thank you, Sophie. And uh, let's go ahead and pass it over to Calvin Pollock, one of the founding uh, co-executive producers of Reverb. Thank you so much. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yep. We all should right. be all yeah. good. Mic check. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm Calvin. I'm a PhD candidate in rhetoric at CMU. And um, yeah, I've, I've been here since the beginning with Alex. Um, working on Reverb has been a lot of fun. We've gotten to talk to a bunch of our friends in in the field of rhetoric and related fields but also you know people that we wouldn't have gotten to talk to otherwise and it's been a really amazing opportunity um and i did want to just before uh just before we get started here i was thinking a lot about the the numerology uh of of this show this kind of um auspicious occasion uh uh that's that's going on here so it is three five, right? March fifth. Reverb yep. is turning three, three years yep. old. Got it. Um, the show started around five five oh five, you know, with the tech <laughs> flubs. Um, right, right. And uh, let's see, what else was I thinking about? Um, there's the five canons of rhetoric, right? Invention, arrangement, style, memory, Ooh. delivery. You got the three. <laughs> Thank you. We got the no three problem. genres of, of classical rhetoric, uh, deliberative, forensic, and epideictic is a, a three, you know. Very nice. Uh, three, three classical appeals, logos, ethos, and pathos. <laughs> I don't know if I'll I'm timing the, these I'll wait, right. I'll wait for the next one. <laughs> okay, all uh, right, all right. You get the five-paragraph essay with three main points, usually, um, which is something that we fight against in our field, but that's five right. five-paragraph essay, three main points. Come on, man. <laughs> 
35, the year of eligibility to become U.S. president. You know, so you think about presidential rhetoric, public address studies, stuff like that. Ooh, that's a good one. Nice. Some of my personal idols in terms of rhetorical leadership include musician Paul Simon, uh, composer Ludwig von Beethoven, and film director Martin Scorsese, all five foot three. <laughs> so go home. We love you. You're very special. <laughs> This stream is taking place from 5 to 7 p.m. Some other rhetorical idols of mine, uh, Taco Fall, who plays center for the Boston Celtics. He's seven foot five. Uh, Bono, Bono from the band U2, five foot seven. And you know who else was five foot seven? This is the last one. You know who okay. else was five foot seven? Who's that? Aristotle. Aristotle. Who know that? Wow. Wow. Color me um, impressed. That was the extremely internet history, impressive. Sophie. That's how we know it. Oh, wow. History. Ah, that's right. <laughs> we know that because of, he, right. he was one of those rhetoricians whose works didn't get burned up in the uh, Library of Alexandria or any other uh, fires that destroyed uh, uh, any other rhetorician's work. So, so we There's do know. Great, and most rhetoricians portraits. do say they give those kinds of stats and things. That's when right. They you, you always give your height at the beginning of it's part of ethos, <laughs> developing <laughs> ethos. Uh, yeah, part of yeah. your ethos back in ancient times, we are really being very educational here, uh, was listing your heights. That was uh, yes. one of the main things that made you, you, you had to have stature in the community. You had to have a physical, uh, physically imposing stature. That's, uh, that's all, that's all part of it too. So anyways, I'm glad to be here. Sorry to please bear with me. There's a lot more bits like that. We have to make this fun. You know, it is an, uh, an anniversary special. We so do. No, glad, absolutely. Glad we, 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 um, yeah, so, uh, so, and then finally, I'll go ahead and introduce myself. Uh, I am Alex Helberg. Uh, I am one of Sorry the- Sorry to delay your introduction. That's okay. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. I'll try and squeeze my own sound drops in here uh, before we before we get our first guest in uh, going on. Uh, so I am Alex Helberg. I'm also a PhD candidate in the rhetoric program at Carnegie Mellon. I'm studying uh, food justice and food insecurity discourses uh, in local settings here in Pittsburgh. Uh, and more than anything, I mean, Reverb has been one of my primary uh, uh, pieces of scholarly work uh, that I've kind of put my energy towards as a PhD student. Uh, and it's mostly just been really fun to uh, just to be meeting other people in the field, and especially to be collaborating on a team project like this with some of my fellow co-producers here, uh, from whom I take uh, just a great deal of inspiration. Uh, a lot of their, you know, the things that they say on the show really stick with me uh, throughout time. Uh, and I've collected a few of my favorite clips, uh, favorite quotes from uh, some of my co-producers uh, from Lost Audio and from uh, Found Audio from our episodes that I, uh, that I think is really uh, important to share with you all here. Uh, so, I mean, first and foremost, I have to hand it off to, you know, my co-producer, co-executive producer, Calvin. Uh, he taught me everything that I know about interviewing, uh, particularly, you know, he, I, I have some clips here of him channeling one of his uh, interviewing idols right here. Uh, so take a listen to this. So who are your guys? Tell me about your guys. What, what, what is that thing that you do? I, I haven't seen any of your stuff, but I'm still interviewing you. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
Um, but that was, uh, that was Cal- me doing my my Mar- my Mark Maron impression. Your Mar- your Mark Maron impression. Yep, exactly, Obviously. exactly. From yep. from WTF with Mark yep. Maron. Absolutely, podcast. absolutely. Um, another person. Obviously, I've been really thrilled to work with Sophie Wadzak, uh, mostly because you know just of Sophie's uh, uh, Sophie's uh, political the change in Sophie's political trajectory from the uh, beginning of the show to the end of the show. So here's what Sophie sounded like when she first joined the Reverb team. Aren't you glad Reverb. we're not living in one of those communist countries? Yeah, it was always, always uh, really, you know, just railing against those communist countries. But then uh, towards the towards the later parts of our show, she started to sound a little like this. I'm really starting to feel like capitalism doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> so at I remember that realization and it was a big one. So, <laughs> it is. It's an important one for all of us. It. Yeah. Politi- <laughs> from, political. From Joseph. From Joseph McCarthy to Karl Marx in, in two, two short that. years. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and of course, uh, Ben Williams joining the show uh, recently. He gave me, I think, one of the best lines that I say to myself uh, whenever I'm on the job market and I get a rejection from a job, which is this. To invoke the words of Donald Trump, rigged in all caps. That is, that's my response to getting a job market so you've, rejections. You've quoted me quoting Trump. I, I, that's I, I, precisely all right. Precisely. Yep. Yeah, and of so, course, so really, you just wish Trump was on the show. Kind that's. Of I mean, I mean, we're we're getting there someday. He doesn't seem someday. like he would be that difficult to get at this point. So he's the hidden fifth um, mic. Free time. That's yeah. That's that's right. Uh, influences <laughs> a lot of the things that we do. And then, of course, uh, I know we have to get to our first guest here, but uh, but this was just one clip that I pulled uh, just because I think it really uh, sums up my whole ideology, uh, the basis of my entire politics, and really what I want to communicate to all of uh, the listeners of the show which is this brunch is still canceled until further notice. That's, that's my, that's my big takeaway. Uh, don't, don't fall into complacency because brunch is still canceled until further notice. Um, so that's sad. I know it is, it is a bummer. All right. Well, where's your left- sound effect for that? <laughs> oh yeah, no, I should. I well, I don't. I don't have my, my goofy soundboard is, uh, is the, uh, is a different one. So yeah, here, hold on. I'll get my, very appropriate all right uh well we should probably go ahead and get to our first guest here so i will go ahead and uh admit him in from the waiting room here hang on one moment hello john how are you i'm good good to see you john excellent yeah it's great to see you too so faces happy anniversary thank you thank Thank you you so much Yeah, we're so happy that you could be here to celebrate with us. Uh, so, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce to you all uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. John Otto, who is a professor of uh, rhetoric at Carnegie Mellon University, uh, one of, uh, uh, I think, on both of uh, Calvin and my uh, dissertation committee. Uh, so, uh, somebody who we look up to a great deal, uh, somebody who we are very, very glad to have. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me here, and thanks for saying kind words. Of course. Thank you. So, uh, so just to give some reference for our, uh, for our viewers and our listeners, uh, we had John back on the show. I think, was it, was it in 2019, John? I could have done some research. That would have maybe been a good thing to do. Before we um, I think it was 2018 or maybe early 2019. I, I can't yeah. recall. It was something yeah. like that. But, but we had you on mainly to discuss uh, the rhetoric or the discourse of propaganda, which you published uh, your previous book on, um, talking explicitly about some different war propaganda, how propaganda slogans are formed, uh, and other things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I think one of the things that we kind of wanted to revisit a little bit with you uh, uh, on this show was to just talk very briefly about, you know, we've we've transitioned now from one presidential administration to another. We uh, are entering a bright new dawn, uh, perhaps. <laughs> Sorry, I'm being mm-hmm. here already. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. But, but entering into a new era with a new, uh, certainly a new uh, regime uh, that's in power for us. Um, hold on, I actually have a sound effect for this that I can uh, that I can pull up that you all should be able to hear. Come on, man. There's our there's our there's our there commander in chief. Um, so so I wanted to just get your take on uh, just a spit take on uh, how has the rhetoric of uh, foreign policy of war and other things like that uh, changed from the Trump and Biden administration, at least from what you've been able to see so far. Um. Well, I haven't been studying it, you know, super closely, Alex. Let me let me say That's that totally first. Fair. But I mean, I recall when Donald Trump launched rockets, I believe, into Syria. Uh, he became very presidential in the eyes of some uh, uh, luminaries in the media, mm-hmm. and I think Joe Biden has also uh, been bombing Syria recently, and. I think the discourse has been similar. I, I haven't done a side-by-side comparison, but it's the same kind of thing. You know, Iran is an enemy. They're a regional aggressor. Um, strategic silences about regional aggression by the United States of America in the same region. Um, these uh, bombing was defensive. Um, uh, and we're really stretching the meaning of the word defense, you know, uh, uh, there's no ongoing attack, there's no imminent attack, but they claim the bombing is defensive. Um, these are patterns that go beyond, I think, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. I think they're just sort of part and parcel of uh, wartime rhetoric, right? So your, your, your aggression is always defensive. Uh, the other side is always the aggressor. And, uh, you know, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say. Uh, that's the first example that came to my mind without a without a really st- guided analysis there. But hopefully, it's in the yeah. book. Yeah, John, we, we didn't we didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, like, not at all. No, I I knew you were going to ask me questions, but I I, well, I guess I didn't know what they would be. We're playing hardball no, I mean, right out yeah. of the gate. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. It's a quiz. No, um, uh, I mean, I think the the example of the Syria bombing is really interesting, not only in terms of um, how the administration themselves framed it, but there was this story that came out, John, I don't know if you saw it, mm-hmm. about um, apparently there was a second strike that was supposed to take place, according to the media. Um, there was a second strike that was supposed to take place, but uh, the reporting entirely based on anonymous sourcing is that Biden called it off because it was going to kill women and children. Did you see this story? I did not see this story, but you know, that's that's another so thing. Go that home. I... We love you. You're very special. Sorry. That was that was an accident. Uh, oh, that's okay. <laughs> that works. <laughs> uh, um, I did see some of the reporting at the time that said, I think it was CNN, that this was minimally lethal, that it was precise. I mean I mean, it's just so Orwellian, right? 22 people are dead. I would think that minimally lethal would be like zero people dead, right? That's like the minimum of deaths, but 22 is significantly more. It's like, it's pretty lethal. But I think it's the same kind of idea that that whatever response, no matter how aggressive and deadly, 
needs to be construed as somehow uh, a very reluctant, very precise, very humanitarian even uh, kind of aggression. Um, and I think it, it definitely comes through for, with the Biden administration. And I will say, you know, Trump was obviously more bloodthirsty, you know, uh, just as a person than Joe Biden probably is. And maybe there's some truth, uh, but this is still a deadly, a deadly policy. Um, and it's still very deadly action and he shouldn't get credit, you know, uh, for only killing 22 people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. Come the, on, man. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, no, I mean, I think the the story that we were that I was just referencing, um, like it, it reminded me a lot of the media reporting that you've analyzed in your work, where the headline is literally Biden called off strike against second target in Syria to avoid killing civilians, say officials. Right. Right. Yeah, what a guy. No, I think the uh, the other headline that a lot of people have already made hay about this, you know, the idea that who we struck was backed by Iran and that they were also responsible, you know, for uh, for bombing uh, people in Iraq. That's not clear, but the headlines sort of make it seem like it is clear. And then you read down to like page, you know, paragraph sixteen, and you find that even the evidence that they have. Uh, for who we attacked is a little bit fishy and suspect. Um, not to mention the other silences we made, like retaliation is not a legitimate uh, reason for war under the UN Charter. Uh, neither is sending a message. Uh, neither is, uh, you know, sort of faux defense where you think somebody might attack at some point in the future. So the fact that the press has just been silent about these things you know, it's close to a process critique, like, you know, and, you know, it, it violates international law, but I think that's an important process critique to make, you know, like this is, this was illegal. This was, this shouldn't have been, that should be a headline rather than, uh, you know, look at how magnanimous Joe is and that he didn't kill more people than he could have. Uh, that's a pretty low bar. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, just just in terms of how we're outlining maybe a comparison between how the media covers uh, tr military actions by somebody like Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, you have that sort of magnanimity uh, framing of, uh, oh, well, he called off the second strike because of women and children. Whereas what you had mentioned earlier about, you know, Donald Trump seeming presidential uh, on his first military strike. It was the first of... time he could appear presidential, remember? Right. Like, I think it was Van Jones. I can't remember, but they literally said, "Like I feel like he's the president for the first time." And it, right, it, he became president tonight. Right, right. Which I, which I think, just I, I don't know if we can extrapolate that out to any more broad context because I mean that term has been invoked uh, in other in other ways in other places before. But but it just seems interesting to me that that was you know in a in a media ecosystem where you know criticisms of Trump were not difficult to come by. All of a sudden he does something that's actually worthy of scorn and scrutiny. Uh, like like truly like not to say that any of his other things weren't, but like he does something that is that is pretty egregious, and all of a sudden the media labels it as. Uh, uh, as presidential. I don't know. That that comparison is just has just always vexed me. Yeah, I think there's a it's it's not absolute, but I think there's a bit of a consensus, you know, certainly among the mainstream uh factions of both parties and among a lot of the mainstream uh media pundits and journalists that 
you know, you have to be tough. You have to be, uh, you have to send a message. Uh, aggression can't go unanswered. Of course, again, it's super Orwellian. Like, who's the real aggressor? Why were why are there people in Iraq who are getting bombed? You know, like these questions that are just never raised. Um, and that's also part of part of the sort of I don't know if they um, literally believe what they're saying, but it's like that double think kind of thing from Orwell. Like, oh yeah. Like, like Iran is being so aggressive as they uh, shoot at you know military contractors that uh, are United States military contractors who might have guns, you know. So it's it's a wild kind of thing that happens in war, and it, as I said at the outset, it's I don't think it's really any different for for the Joe Biden administration. I called him Joe before, but we are very close. But I should probably refer to him as. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. So okay, yeah, show okay. show a little respect. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's but funny. I but I mean I think you're you're pointing us towards something that's important to keep in mind though is that is not to and this is something we touched on in a previous show that where we were talking about uh, the uh, epidemic rhetoric as it applies to the different presidential administrations as well is that we shouldn't fall into complacency about you know just because we have somebody who is not in Trump's party in the White House that we should fall into complacency and start uh, uh, being less critical of some of the interventionist maneuvers that's that a presidential administration is making. Yeah, that's ex exactly right. Just because this administration is not as vicious does not mean that the policies that they're enacting are actually the best ones. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think uh, I think we we're we're almost out of our uh, time here with you, John. But uh, but Calvin, I think you have a little something to uh, to take us out on. Yes. Yeah, I do. Um, so, you know, this is our first live stream. I wanted to do something a little special for each of the guests. So um, uh, I want to do a segment called Calvin's Curveball. Okay. And so what this is going to be is a, a kind of wacky trivia question for each guest related, vaguely related to your research. Uh, and so, John, yours is going to be a multiple choice question. Okay. So let me know when you're ready. Uh, I was born ready, Calvin. All right, let's do it, John. Calvin's curveball coming in. All right. John Otto, what is the total number of U.S. involved wars since the nation's founding? Oh, total number, multiple choice. Your options are the following A, 205, B, 143, C, 121, or D, 111. Not that I have any idea, but it would matter if we're counting uh, covert. Uh, covert sorts of uh, military action or sort of declared wars. Declared wars, I would think, would be many fewer. Um, That's right. No, this is this is every war that we know through public uh, disclosures, through leaks, basically through information in the public record. Uh, I'll go with A, just because I want to believe it's as high as I think it is. No, that's wrong, John. Mm. Actually, it's the lowest. It's the lowest one, but still a lot 111 it was 111 so, is anytime they you drop a bomb is that considered a war or is that just is that counted like is the strike on syria counted in that uh, i think the overall conflict with syria is counted but not each individual strike okay not not the strike that we just had right because i think if you if we were bombed 
at any point in the continental United States, we would probably consider that a war uh, on its own terms. So I'm yeah, not I'm not questioning that I was wrong. I think I think you're quibbling just, because you got the answer wrong. I, I think I you know. It. It sounds like to me. Yeah, I get it. I you think know, it's uh, tough to get something wrong, but I think that I was actually correct, and that the number is exactly what A was. What was A again? Two hundred and five. Yeah, check your records again. I'm pretty sure it was two hundred and five. Okay. All right. Well, we can check the methodology on the Wikipedia page where I got this from, but. Yeah. Thanks. Sure. Thanks for playing. Thanks for playing, John. Thank you will. for the question. Yeah. Absolutely. No. Yeah. Whatever it is, it's it's higher than zero. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's too high. It's way That's too right. high. Absolutely. Yeah. All righty. Well, uh, we should move on to our next guest here, but we want to say thank you again to uh, John Otto, uh, one of our one of our favorites of all time, for uh, joining us here on our third anniversary celebration. It's been great talking with you, John. Thanks, had a John. blast. Thanks, yeah. and uh, good luck with the rest of the show. Excellent. Thank bye you. Bye. All right. Bye, John. All right. So there uh, was definitely was... some numerology going there, Calvin. There, too, you know, there was. Oh, yeah. the numerology. The numerology is continuing throughout the night. Actually, <laughs> okay. I hope that you that all. You about all numbers. You, you <laughs> all that's, right that's now. The hint. Yeah. yeah. You, you all viewers at home, you should have uh, cork boards hanging up behind you. You should be plotting out every single number that we are talking about. These are all drops uh, that you are uh, uh, that you should be taking note of. Uh, there will be. There is a significance. There is a pattern. You just have to look for it. Um, Absolutely. All right. Uh, well, we're going to go ahead and let our next guest uh, into, uh, into the room here. Admitting him now. Jim Brown. Hello. Hello, hey, Jim. Hey, Jim. How are you doing? Are you? I'm good. It's a little dark in here. Let me get some more light. <laughs> oh, that's oh, already good. good. I got some glare coming off a window across the street, so it's like really say, bright. This, yeah, this was, this was our fault for holding it at sunset. I have one very important question to start with. Oh yes, here we go. Um, can I show off my new sneakers? Oh yes, please, yes. please do. Yes. Look at these things. Here we go. Oh my goodness. Oh, hold on, yeah. Let's get the camera on these. Oh man. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> no one else gets to see them except like me and my two family members, so I have to show them. Off. Oh, it's man. the perfect opportunity to share it with all the whole world. It's all of our family members who are watching sure appreciated that. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, so Jim Brown, uh, Jim, you are associate professor of English at Rutgers University. Uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Um, we, we had you on, I think it was the first episode of the pandemic, if I remember correctly. I went back and I, I, I was looking, I forget the date now, because I went back and listened to remind myself of what we talked about. I listened to it on t double speed so I could listen to us very fast. We sounded nice. How did we sound on double sounded speed? Sounded crazier, even crazier on double wow. speed. Um, but yeah, it was a weird time capsule because we were talking about kind of, I mean, it was early days still, I think. We were still trying to Extremely figure things out. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess, I mean, I kind of wanted to bring it back to the first thing we talked about on that show, which is one of my favorite things to sort of talk about and think about with your work is you know networks and technologies and um i guess digital texts that have made your life hell in the pandemic and have made it a little bit better yeah. um, like since we last talked any any anything stand out for you in terms of digital rhetoric uh, well when we last talked i said that basically all software was making my life worse um, mm -hmm. and that mostly hasn't changed. Um, 
I would say, you know, the first thing that pops into my head in, uh, recently is uh, Clubhouse, which I'm trying to figure out kind of what it is and how. Yeah, what is Clubhouse? <laughs> I keep seeing it. So I, I uh, you know, I, when you know people like I do, you get like special invites to Clubhouse. Uh, shout out oh. to Casey Boyle for a um, invite to Clubhouse. But I was I kept like you kept hearing about it and was curious about it. I knew it had something to do with audio and that was basically all I knew. So it essentially is like, uh, it, it's not surprising to me that it is sort of taking off because um, it's essentially like live freeform podcasts, podcasts happening essentially. Like there are these rooms, people meet in these rooms and, but it's live. So you're like listening in live on these conversations. Has anybody here tried this out yet? No. Um, so none of us are cool enough. Yeah. I mean, it, well, you'll get there. Just keep, working. <laughs> just keep working. Um, but I, to, to sort of bring it to the question of like rhetoric and some of the sort of things I, I would think about. So one thing, you know, is interesting to think in terms of hospitality, because it is this sort of like roaming in and out of rooms of conversations that are ongoing. It's sort of Berkey and parlor, uh, on steroids, right? So you just sort of pop into a room. They might be talking. I, I try. I like listened in on a, a soccer discussion for like five minutes. I was like, okay, this is like sports talk radio. Oh, this is sort of. I have no idea who these people are, because Clubhouse is new, and I don't know who these people are. So the hospitality piece is sort of interesting. I'm also interested in the attention piece because I'm especially interested in digital technologies that can capture your attention in particular ways while you're doing other things. Podcasts are, of course. Perfect example of this. I go for a run in the morning. I always pop on a, pod, a podcast, and Clubhouse seems to sort of hit that sweet spot of, of attention in an interesting way. Which is, I don't, I can be doing something else while I'm sort of floating through Clubhouse rooms, which is not really the case if I'm like reading the Washington Post on my phone, or even even with Twitter. Sure. In fact, like Twitter sort of sucks you into the the sort of tunnel of attention so i think those that is an interesting thing to sort of be taking off at this moment for a couple of different reasons but i'm especially i've been interested in how networks tech captures attention in sort of partial ways right yeah so clubhouse um like is it planning to go to a broader public like are there plans for that or is it i'm sure it is yeah it's only a matter of time i mean what's happening now is like i was thinking about how er the early days of gmail were like this i don't know if anybody right no no i remember that invite to gmail (laughs) um which i think you felt really cool for being on gmail when your friends were on like yahoo or some some and this is also the time when gmail was um every time you logged into Gmail with like the, the number of like the amount of space you were getting was increasing. Like every second it was like, no, no, you know, you have all of this space and now they've right. capped it. And they're like, you're running out of space. You need to pay us money. Um, but it only took like what, 15 years for them to start thinking about charging us. Um, yeah. I, I assume it will, you know, it's like all of it's just like Facebook was, you know, the IVs and then it was just colleges and universities. And then it was sort of, it'll, eventually expand outward they have to kind of build up the cool the coolness factor first um but yeah i i assume it's probably not far from being something that is sort of more broadly uh available and i'm just really interested to see how people what people will think about it because sound is something especially in this moment so you know we're not so much 
in commuting spaces. So, um, so maybe like sound in your house. I mean, everybody's got headphones and earbuds in all the time anyway, but still like, um, I will be interested to see how a, a social network built around sound kind of, it is, it is pretty unique, um, compared to these other, these other platforms that are dominating. Mm. Yeah. Oh, Alex, I can't hear you. Yeah. Alex, you're muted. Um, can't hear you, Alex. So I'll just I'll just ask another read question mind. of Jim. Uh, I'm gonna read Alex's <laughs> mind real quick. Uh, uh, okay, I got it. I got it. No, um, Jim, I want what this made me think of was uh, teaching. Are you teaching in Zoom or what? What platforms do you use for teaching? Yeah, Zoom. So last semester would have was I was using uh, Google Hangouts because our university had gone to WebEx and I didn't. Uh. Really- was sort of like, didn't really like WebEx as a sort of uh, interface. So I, Google Hangouts was working pretty well. Now Google Hangouts is kind of gone and they're using, I guess it's Meet now. Google Meet, yeah. And then, but our university used, I just found out recently, I was like, why do we all of a sudden have Zoom accounts starting in like January? Well, they used um, COVID funding. Rutgers used COVID funding to buy Zoom um, for everyone. So students and faculty all have Zoom accounts as of like, I guess it was right around January. So I've been using that um, for kind of synchronous stuff and Canvas well, for teaching. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the question I was thinking about is like, um, I've kind of pulled my students over the past couple semesters. And one thing that I've noticed about the platform as a space for like conversation um, is that uh, breakout rooms can't, because you were talking about on clubhouse like popping into rooms and sort of listening in and one of the things that I've been hearing from students is that they really don't like when the instructor like does that unannounced (laughs) uh if you have a breakout going um like just popping in randomly like ruins the conversation I think it's funny that that's like you seem to be encouraged to do that as an instructor but it can actually screw up the purpose of you know that affordance which is to have like a real conversation a generative conversation among a smaller group you know yeah i mean it's just another one of those situations where we try to replicate face to uh in-person situations with something like zoom and it doesn't work so i think about when i break students i have a group of 20 students i break them up into four sort of groups for like smaller discussions and when i circulate around the room like nobody is like oh whoa like what are you doing here we never expected that you would pop in (laughs) and so and in fact, sometimes students are looking for you to pop in because they're kind of stuck or they don't know what they're supposed to be doing or whatever. So the, the breakout rooms, though, really don't work that way. But we as instructors are constantly looking for analogs and, and looking. I have, a so- I have a soundboard rigged up to my to my number pad. So I am really, really, really sorry about that. I that's actually relevant that. to something that's coming perfect, in a second. Jim. Perfect segue in a second to baseball. <laughs> yeah, which is, actually, which is the third that is, podcast. yeah. That's the theme of the episode. It's baseball. Yeah, yeah we're not already aware. <laughs> so we should just switch to that now. Um, <laughs> that was a perfect segue. I'll just say, I, just to finish that thought, like we are, the whole problem of this last year is we are constantly seeking out ways to do what we normally do in person, but but online. And, and mm-hmm. what everybody knows when they try to do that is it fails miserably. And so what we should be doing instead is like reinventing pr- practices. The problem with that is it takes forever to reinvent a practice. It's, a, it's not something you can always do on the fly. It takes repetition. 
it takes sort of ongoing uh sort of trial and error and we've just all been like muddling through for the last year partially because we hope we all hope that like september will happen everyone will be vaccinated and magically we'll get to be back in the classroom yeah well said i (laughs) i can't think of any other better encapsulation of just like what a pedagogy has to look like right now just i mean if nothing else for our own sanity as well as our students right like for me at least anyway that that has been uh, yeah, trying to replicate in-person things just, yeah, has not gone over well. It and doesn't work. It yeah, really doesn't. Yeah. But, well, I mean, uh, yeah, sorry again that I, I did not mean to uh, to step on you uh, no, there, Jim. I, I apologize for that. But, uh, no, but talk, it's actually a nice segue into, well, it's a nice segue into Calvin's curveball for Jim Brown. <laughs> All right. So, so Jim, uh on this live stream in honor of, you know, the, the, the fun of, of doing a live stream, getting a lot of people together. I've been coming up with what I'm calling Calvin's curveballs, And these are, uh, thanks Alex. These are questions, uh, trivia questions related to, you know, something that the person cares deeply about. Okay. And so Jim Brown for you, here's my trivia question. This is a multiple choice question. What was Andrew McCutcheon's war for the Pirates in 2013, the year that they went to the wild card game? So option A, five. Option B, between five and eight. And option C, greater than eight. I'm going to say B. The number that popped into my head for some reason was seven But when you asked the question. I'm sorry, Jim. Oh. Do you want to guess again? Do you no, guess again? I want to. I want to know how wrong I was. But in my defense, it has been seven years since the Pirates have been competitive. I so know it makes sense. And that we've I all forget. we've all kind of buried it because it's too painful to think about how how great that was. <laughs> all right, the answer is C. The answer is C. Eight uh, greater than eight, and it was actually eight point one. Wow. Well, it's seven. Yeah. I wasn't too far off. I, I'm, I'm actually fairly off. proud of that. So. No, well, eight point uh, one though. I mean, that is, that is wild. That's a crazy year. Yes, because I mean, for people for people who don't know, WAR, WAR is kind of a pure representation of your value to your team. So it means that Andrew McCutcheon himself, as one player, was responsible for eight wins that year, which I think was probably, you know, enough for us to make the playoffs that yeah. year. Yeah, I mean, it's um, and it's going to be a little different this year, Calvin. A little different. Yeah. <laughs> Just a Not little to be good. Yeah. Well, at um, least there's a plan. So I think my time is up, but I will, I will end on a note of hope that the, there is a plan for the pirates that they're going to strip the whole thing down and pull the Astros move, hopefully. And five years from now we'll be in the world series. Well, and if you want to learn more, if you want to learn more about the divide within baseball, baseball fandom between stats geeks and people who care about narrative and emotion you can read jim brown's book there's a chapter all uh, about it and it's free online. About it. you don't even have to buy it yeah so we will uh share that with with our friends uh yeah. our listeners thanks so much for being here jim thank you for having me it's great to congratulations. have congratulations thank you yep take bye. care jim Appreciate it. bye-bye bye bye Oh man, that was a fun one. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh yeah, that was a that was a good stat poll, Calvin. You you stumped him on that. 
I know it's, it's, it's no one's going to get. That's why they call them curveballs. They are curveballs for a reason. <laughs> exactly. They were easy. They'd be Sophie softballs, and we decided not to go with that. So. <laughs> yeah, we we scrapped that. That's exactly that right. That's Our guests exactly. are too smart for that. They 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 are indeed indeed. Uh, well, and speaking of smart guests, we have another great one coming up. Uh, who I am going to admit nice. from the waiting room right now. There he is. Hello, Derek. How are you? Hello. Derek, you're muted. Oh, yep. It looks like you're muted. All right. Can y'all hear me now? Yeah. Hey, Derek. Yeah, we can. Hey, Derek. All right. You know what? I'm sitting here watching you all on a live stream. I was like, you know what? There's probably a lag time. I better get ready. So. <laughs> <laughs> you made it. You made it just in time. Yeah. yeah. I was yep. trying to figure out that uh, Andrew McCutcheon question. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. That's a good question. That's right? Question. I'll just wait for yours, Derek. Oh no! Say, yeah, you, you, are, you already know that you got something coming. So I'm scared. Oh, my, my, yeah. my, my, my ethos is at stake. Oh it's, yes, <laughs> truly, truly. Uh, by the way, by the way, Derek, uh, Jen Lawfren is in the chat right now. She says to say hi to you. Hey, Jen. Oh man, I miss I miss all my people at CMU. I miss everyone. Yeah, I, I tell you, you what, this is the longest. Um, since I've been an adult where I haven't done any traveling. I mean, just being in one place for one year is just like, oh my goodness. Oh, absolutely. Um, and 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 Derek and, and Derek, you are in uh, Milwaukee right now, I take it. I am. Uh UW Milwaukee, go Panthers. They are still mm-hmm. playing in a Horizon League uh basketball tournament. So Oh nice. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Well, best of luck to them. Um yeah, I mean that was kind of what I wanted to start out asking you about first, just because mm-hmm. I am a I am a Wisconsinite who uh migrated to Pittsburgh. Uh and we talked a little bit about uh, mobility and uh and, yeah. and other sorts of things on our episode. So I so what is your experience been like in wisconsin so far are you are you enjoying the the dairy state i tell you what uh yes i'm enjoying the dairy state i'm enjoying the brew state i mean um Mm -hmm. the the alcohol laws are completely different than in pennsylvania Uh, you know not that i drink any alcohol i'm a root beer guy myself but uh (laughs) (laughs) but no it's been wonderful um you know what I, I I've been thinking uh, thinking a lot about this, and I would say there's three distinct differences between Pittsburgh and Milwaukee. Um, in Milwaukee, the the large body of water, of course, is Lake Michigan. Pittsburgh, we have the three rivers. Um, the second thing is in Milwaukee, of course, you have this um, large German. Um, influence a lot of German immigrants where in Pittsburgh of course all immigrants are 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 in both cities but I think in Pittsburgh is is probably a tie between Italian and Polish um, influences and the third and the most distinct difference between Pittsburgh and Milwaukee is Milwaukee everything is flat yeah you can (laughs) say that (laughs) And Pittsburgh, it's all about hills, right? Squirrel Hill, Polish Hill, South Hills, Penn Hills, North hill. Hills, yep. <laughs> Forest Hills. Everything is flat. So, you know, you can ride a bike and go for miles and not have to, not have to pump up a hill. But other than that, the, the cities are, are, are closely related um, and, and a lot of similarities. So I've, I've really enjoyed my experience here. 
That's great. Uh, yeah, that was well that and that kind of leads perfectly uh, to uh, the question that I wanted to touch on with you, because in the episode, uh, the episode that we recorded with you, which was honestly one of our one of our first that was that was we we had to we have to dig way back in the archives uh, to get uh, a Derek Handley episode. Of course, you were one of the uh, the founding members of the podcast as well. So uh, um, yeah, I gotta I gotta take over. I'm taking over the podcast here for a second. Okay, so okay. I go dug for in it. the archives, Alex. <laughs> okay, here we go. So we were in a conference. We were at a conference, and so I'm like the last person standing for the blog, um, um, Silver Tongue. That's right. I'm the last person standing, and I'm trying to busy. I'm trying to recruit people. I was like, oh my gosh, I need to find some people, or this thing is gonna is, is gonna die with me. And I think I, I cornered you and Anna at a conference. I said, look, I think it's about the three or four uh, alcoholic beverages. And so, you know, you were easier to, <laughs> to, to <laughs> convince. <laughs> right. And um, I looked in the archives and I think my first email to you regarding it was like August 2017. Oh, my gosh. So the seeds were planted in August 2017. And we had this conversation. It's like, you know, the blog for when the Silver Tongue started, it was all about blogging. And now let's think it about, um, let's think about a podcast. And um, so I was kind of like that transitional figure, but this was, um, this was all um, you and, 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 and Calvin and, and everyone else in the beginning, just, just, just took it over and, and, and ran with it. So um, I've been very impressed. I've been listening um since then and 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 it's amazing what what you all have done and it, and it looks like it's going to be able to continue because that was the one thing i was i was trying to to tell you all at the time is that you know this have to survive after after you all leave and and, and i think that's the that's the most important thing yeah no i yeah. i I, th- I think we've we've really tried to take that spirit with us uh from you know from from you and what you imparted to us about the importance of doing something like the silver tongue just mm-hmm. having like a public facing resource for rhetorical criticism um, absolutely yeah i think that that's i mean that idea always kind of was inspiring to to all of us and i think that that's i mean it's yeah it, the, the best that we can do to carry on that legacy is to is to it's continue awesome. to make this you something all that, doing a wonderful job so yeah, I think I was one of the first uh, guests 2018, and um, I was taking a look at it. Um, I think that was right before I was um, um, defending the dissertation, I believe. Yeah. I was in town for that. And, um, and so what we talked about, the Freedom Corner in Pittsburgh, was an article under review that since has been published with the Rhetoric Review, as well as um, part of my current book project that I'm that I'm working on, which looks at um, African American communities, their resistance, if you will, to urban renewal in the 50s and 60s, Pittsburgh, Milwaukee, and St. Paul, Minnesota are the three uh, case studies. So look, looking at that in the context of the northern civil rights movement, if you will. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I mean, that was that was, I think, part of what uh, one of the threads that we wanted to pick up uh, Mm -hmm. on the show today was to ask you a little bit more about, I mean, now that you're actually in Milwaukee, is that research? Because I know I think you wrote a little bit about Milwaukee in your dissertation project, too. Is that right? Pittsburgh and Milwaukee. 
Right. Yeah. And so, <laughs> I mean, when I chose Milwaukee, I never thought as a city that um, I would get a job. So keep that in mind when you all thinking about <laughs> case studies, you know, if you uh, want to be competitive for a job in a place. But um, uh, we have one of the great scholars at Carnegie Mellon um, of Milwaukee, Joe Trotter, who wrote right. the uh, history book, Black Milwaukee, and um, who was also part of my dissertation committee. And so, um, you know, having him as a resource and um, doing the research, it's, the thing about it is I could have chose any city. I could have chose Cleveland. I could have chose Detroit, Chicago. I could have chose so many, Rochester, New York. And what you see is the similarities of what was happening to African-Americans um, um, during this time is disproportionately being affected by urban renewal. And there is this great quote, and I, I can't think of the author, so I'm not trying to claim it, um, about urban renewal in Minnesota. And the quote is, um, there, wasn't, there weren't very many Black people in Minnesota, but the highways found them. And that's exactly correct. It's like these black communities um, near the Twin Cities are being, um, you know, the highways are going are going right through them. And so, so you know, my approach is is you know thinking about this from a rhetorical history. I wanted to to see as you know as get close to real time as possible. You know, how are they reacting? What conversations were being said? Um, communications with the with the city government because I'm really not necessarily from a, a memory standpoint, but right there, what was being said in the context of the time. So we're talking about you know 54, 55, and I mean this is the same time as as um, Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott. So the civil rights movement was was definitely taking place in in the north, but we we hear more about the south. Um, and, and of course the things that were going on during that time. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the, I mean, one of the kind of cruel ironies about that too, is that, I mean, just speaking from my own experience of having been in Milwaukee, I mean, it's, it's kind of talked about sometimes as being one of the most segregated cities in America mm -hmm. still today. So I was wondering if you could maybe just briefly speak some of the after effects, because I mean, in Pittsburgh, you know, the resistance renewals as you chart in some of your work was to some extent effective uh you know like the, the like parts of the uh the um upper and middle hill were were mm -hmm. largely maintained because of that place well i tell you what since i've been in milwaukee um and i'm here at uw milwaukee so um a colleague of mine in the geography department by the name of ann bond bonds uh we're working on this um, public humanities project um, called Mapping Racism and Resistance in Milwaukee. And what we're looking at and what we're uncovering, or not, I shouldn't say uncovering, but um, the prevalence of racial housing covenants from the 1910 up until 1960, I think is the, is the date that we're looking at. And so what you have whenever the urban renewal was really uh, in full swing, you're having folks losing houses and business, but yet they're not allowed to move to other places in the city outside the city. So you got this, you got this squeezing going on. So if you can't move, 
if you can't move over here to Mount Lebanon in the South Hills, and they're not going to let you move over here, you know, insert neighborhood there, then you're going to have to overcrowd where African-Americans are already permitted to leave. So, um, so, so with those two factors, you're starting to see um, more overt resistance. You've seen these open housing march in Milwaukee. Um, they had over 200 days of open housing marches uh, protesting, um, you know, an open house law. Just why don't we have the freedom to live where we want to live? Um, so, yeah, so Milwaukee has that mantra um, and, um, you know, and there are a lot of wonderful um, grassroots organizations um, today, just like there were in the 50s and 60s, that are that are that are working um, against that. So um, I'm happy to be here and and whatever small part I can pay pay to that, you know, play with that conversation. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll do it. I'll do Absolutely. it. So, well, we're, we're looking forward to, uh, to your upcoming book and we will definitely, we'll try to maybe even get you back on when that, uh, when that comes to publication. Oh, but, you don't uh, have to worry about that, Alex. <laughs> um, well, y'all you know, don't have to, y'all don't have to worry. I ain't going nowhere. I'm All coming right. I back up. <laughs> I don't know who's going to be running it by then, but you know, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Well, well, before we let you go here, Derek, uh, uh, Calvin has one last little segment that we want to take you through here. Oh, uh, see, I'm trying yeah, to Derek. filibuster. I'm trying to filibuster. <laughs> Um, Derek, it's, time, it's time for another Calvin's Curveball. Here we go. All right. Derek Handley. So yes, in sir. your rhetoric review essay, oh my gosh. Uh, the line drawn, <laughs> Freedom Corner and Rhetorics of Place in Pittsburgh, 1960s to 2000s, yes. you mentioned that Pittsburgh's Hill District was home to legendary jazz singer and actress Lena Horne. While she was in Pittsburgh, Lena Horne, Horn regularly performed at house parties of the local aristocracy, including one wealthy family with a particular connection to your PhD alma mater. What family was it? Man, <laughs> you're trying to filibuster me. We had some oh stuff my. in the chamber for you. I told I you it's a curveball. Choice? I mean, the other other books get multiple choice. I don't get multiple curveball. Oh my! They are related. Uh, let me repeat the last part. They are okay. related, deeply related to your PhD alma mater. This family that Lena Horn performed for. Um. So it's <laughs> taking a wild guess. Either a Carnegie or a Mellon. <laughs> you got it. The Mellons. Mellons. The Mellons. There we go. Wow. Right. That's yeah, that's the first. <laughs> I gave, I gave two answers though. I, I gave two answers yeah, technically. You gave two answers, but yeah, yeah. that's yeah. all right. Yep. Yeah. No, that was a great, great. Uh, that, no one who I would rather have get our first uh, correct answer in the uh, Calvin's Curveball Challenge. But uh, well, uh, we should uh, we should get moving on to our next guest. But uh, Derek Handley, we want to thank you so much for joining us for our third anniversary celebration. It's been I appreciate it. Derek. I really appreciate it. Up. And uh, like I said, you all are doing great work, and I'm going to enjoy uh, listening to the rest of the show. So thank you. Take care. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, you Derek. too. Take Bye. care. Bye. Oh, always so awesome to get a chance to talk with Derek. Delightful. And he got the answer. He did. He, the he did. That was fantastic. Impressed. Yeah. 
Well, it's let's go ahead. Ball. It is. It is six curve. I mean, he bends so much. But he just, you know, he made contact and just like flying out to left field. It didn't just, try to do too much. Yep. Didn't, didn't try to didn't, do too much. It's true. It's true. All right. I'm going to go ahead and let our next guest in from the waiting room here. Coming on in just a moment. There he is. Hello, Asao. How are you? Hey, hey great, Alex. I'm doing great. Hi, Calvin. Hey, everybody. How is everyone today? Wonderful. Welcome. Wonderful. Great. Thank you so much for being here with us, Asao. Um, yeah, so everyone, this is uh, this is Asao Inouye. Uh, we had uh, Asao back on our podcast uh, just, I think it was, was that was late 2019, I believe, uh, when we, yeah, I think that's that sounds about right. Um, wait, hold on. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. No, it was, yeah. it was no, last summer. 2020, I'm sorry. Time, time <laughs> has just not been working for me lately. Time is a flat circle. <laughs> it's true. It is true. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so Asal, we had you on August 17th, 2020. Okay. It just uh, feels yes. like a, a, a late August of 2019, right? It, it does. <laughs> it's it so prescient. It was ahead of its time. No, it, it definitely, <laughs> definitely was always a pressing issue uh, where we talked a little bit more about uh, putting into context some of the things that, uh, that you talk about in your research regarding uh, white language supremacy and uh, different literacy practices at uh, uh, all sorts of different levels of schooling. Um, it ended up I think being one of our most popular uh, rejoinder episodes uh, mm. definitely got tweeted around uh, sometimes in circles that we didn't want it tweeted around in. Uh, so I apologize for any, <laughs> any, uh, any mentions that you got that, uh, that weren't oh. uh, particularly uh, toward, but. Uh, yeah, no, to actually uh, speaking of that today um, I got uh, it's just the flurry has just started. So apparently oh, no. some, uh, some uh, you all have, um, have heard of uh, the daily wire. Oh um, yeah. Yeah, they yeah, got a hold of uh, they got a hold of my last book on labor based grading contracts, and then had this ar an article, and then so now I've got nasty uh, voicemails on my office phone. I have oh, emails no. that came to me, and I've got if you go on the Twitter on Twitter, you'll see if you uh, look at some of those, they 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 have uh, you know done all the usual things that other folks uh, have done in the past about you know um, uh, reacting to. Uh, to those stories they just oh, hate nice. the idea of of respecting the labor of students <laughs> yeah <laughs> or just equity in general right 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 yeah that feels like they're they're kind of it's what it is right it's, yeah it's part of the work but oh, uh wow. so anyway so that's the so if you're interested in an in an interesting story the daily wire <laughs> Got it. Got it. I'll be sure to be sure to bookmark that one for uh, right. right next to the Patriot Post. Uh, for, <laughs> right. for that's right. That's right. The best. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe you could tell us a little bit about that though, right? With within this context, especially, you know, in, in a virtual classroom, it's assessment. I think has become even more fraught, right? So, just what what have you seen about this being? something that's even increasingly more important to rely on tactics like this and strategies as educators to think about students' labor, especially now, right? Yeah, well, I think, I think uh, especially when we have all had to move to remote learning and asynchronous um, ways or hybrid versions, it has sort of opened more to more bare the, the very different lives and circumstances that students across a, a range of of uh, socioeconomic as well as race and gender and and and, and geographic, the, the the very different conditions in which our students have to learn in, uh, and that it's more tenuous to to think that we can have 
um, a single way to imagine that our students will experience our courses and then how we're and grading and assessing uh, that those literacy performances really um, is affected by what students are able to do and what their circumstances are in learning stuff and or just experiencing the course. So I think it these problems have always been there. They just haven't been as clear to us than as they are now, because when you have, I mean, when you're always changing your paradigms, right, you start to realize, oh, there's all these other things I have to think about that I didn't have to think about before, because they were just assumptions that I was making before about what was right, what was preferable, what was the best thing to do, or the right thing to do. And what we're realizing now, or at least what I'm hoping more of us are realizing is that a lot of those assumptions were racist. A lot of those assumptions were white supremacist and they reinforced the structures that had built them <laughs> way in the distant past, if you will, and really not that far distant. Um, but now, and so I think this, so if there's one silver lining in the e eternal pandemic uh, moment that we're in in education in terms of remote learning and such, it's that it has probably afforded us a reflective moment to understand better the practices that we've been doing in the past, that we've been taking advantage of uh, or assuming, and that we might revisit those in a mindful and, um, and good way to, to, be, to be thinking about how do we change those things. Yeah. That's that's so inspiring to hear that because <laughs> I think I mean I think you're so right on that. It's it's interesting though too when you when you had mentioned you know talking about how this like the pandemic like in so many other aspects of our lives have exposed the way that inequalities manifest in all these different corners of uh, everyone's lives and every uh, institution that we participate in. Uh, I mean there were still you kind of these weird arguments coming from uh, from the right. Like there was a David Brooks column, I think uh, a couple of weeks ago that was all about the uh, the school reopening debate. Uh, and we don't necessarily have to weigh into that one specifically, but it was using Black Lives Matter as kind of the argumentative warrant for why we need to go back to in-person schooling because this is, you know, the, the argument was essentially this is the only way that we can ensure equitable learning for all is if all students are going back to uh, going back to in-person education again, totally leaving yeah. aside the fact of like how many black children this is going to kill if we do that, uh, or how many of their teachers, how many community members, uh, this will exacerbate the pandemic for communities that already feel this more acutely than others. But but it is interesting to see the way that that almost like that it's it's this sort of uh, disingenuous anti-racism is getting taken up for arguments of bringing students back uh, to school. Yeah, well, I mean, one good measure for anti-racist or racist work and anti-racist work is to, to understand how 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 big of a measure of paternalism um, is involved in the answers that people um, offer, and how right. much agency those who are who the groups are meant to um, to benefit or to help, how much agency they actually have in the decision-making process and in those processes. And the in the example you're giving, my guess is very little on both accounts, right? Yes. So, so I <laughs> yes. think so, and and that it really is a way to, de to deploy Black Lives Matter as a way to get what you want politically or for some other purposes. Um, I, I mean, so I, I'm always wanting to know who is making this request or who's making this, this suggestion, who's making the argument and what do they foresee as the, uh, all of the benefits and consequences of this decision? Um, and then who's been involved in, of course, the process of make, coming up with that, that proposal. Um, right. So I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, these days you, we, it feels right now it's feeling like, um, you know, two steps forward and three steps back, but, yeah. but, but maybe that's just, 
the 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 tornado where the the part of the tornado that we're in right now and maybe we're going to get to a a calm <laughs> that would be <laughs> nice dissipation i don't yeah it would be that would, would be, be nice yeah asau in in your estimation do you think that like critical grammar and and other sort of critical pedagogies have been embraced you know a lot since last summer since the mm. protests around Black Lives Matter, you know, really became a large media story. Like, is this kind of, uh, I guess, spreading throughout mainstream academia and, and mainstream writing departments in ways that you think have been productive? Or has it been, like you said, two steps forward, three steps back? Great question. Um, good question. So when I think about all the requests that I get to do workshops or keynotes or, or whatever, um, or the, or even the informal ones that are asking a teacher from somewhere in North Dakota wants to ask, I read this thing from you, or I've, or I've heard about this ungrading thing. Can you give me some advice on this? I, I always love to get uh, those because I love talking shop and I want to help everyone I possibly can. Um, so um, I'm so I'm mindful of just how many of those requests I get, and I get a, a lot. So my 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 initial answer to to you is that if I think about the 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 frequency of those requests, the frequency of how many of, of, of requests for me to do workshops for faculty, groups of faculty, universities, colleges, it probably, I think it's probably ratcheted up this last 12 months by a factor of maybe three or four times the rate. And I was already before years before, which already was quite a bit. So I'll, just as an example, workshops alone, about eight a month, Oh right gosh. now currently yeah wow. um so uh before it was more like two a month something like this something like that i'm getting you know it, not in the summers of course that's not when people are you know they're, but in, during the academic year so that just gives you a sense like and i'm happy that i can offer that i i'm glad that folks are interested i do think that there is a caution we should all take when we request those things or we engage them for the first time that is to say, oh, I want to do anti-racist work in the classroom. I want my grading to be anti-racist. So I want to do labor-based grading contracts. I think that's wonderful that you're thinking in those ways that you're interested in that. So you want to do a workshop. But labor-based grading contracts is not by itself and in and of itself an anti-racist act. You have to understand what it means. Otherwise, you're going to reproduce all those harmful things that happen because the structures around you will get you to do it and you won't even know it. I mean, because we were all so plugged into, we were created by these systems, these white supremacist systems. So it really means we have to reorient ourselves. And so I'm not saying not doing great grading contracts is, a, is the way to go or doing it is the way to go. I'm saying that if you're gonna do anything, you ought to have an orientation that helps you understand just how you are working against a system that's already unfair in particular ways and that you're doing that work. Um, and so that's the part that I think can get missed because we all have, as teachers um, all over, we have um, you know imperatives and, and, and urges and, and pushes from department chairs and principals and other places that want us to do some high impact practice. And that's a that we got to be careful. That's a part of also white supremacist culture that says um, you got to quantify this. It's got to be this has got to be show me your results and we got to do this now and we need to and what's the practice and so forth. So I think that. That's, we, we have to be careful with that. Um, again, not saying it's not important to get those practices, but it's important to situate them with already within an orientation of your own as a teacher and with students that help you do that work right and let it be flexible and change when people change, when the system changes, when the, when the, when the stuff changes around you, because it will.
Yeah. That's, I, I so appreciate that you're, that you're moving us back towards an orientation-based approach, that this is not just implementing quick fixes, but rather- There an are no quick shift. fixes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I will say in the, in the service of quick fixes, I tried uh, offering to my students, I'll teach you a little bit of Greek, a little bit of Latin as a treat if you- If you're good. You know, that didn't seem to work. So yeah, I might have to, might have to try something else. Um, but yeah, I, so, so our time is, uh, our time is unfortunately almost up here. Uh, but, uh, but Calvin has a segment, uh, here, uh, that uh, is going to take us out. So Calvin, please yeah. take it away. So, uh, Sal, uh, we're going to do a little thing called Calvin's curveball. Okay. <laughs> so Calvin's curveball is where I ask a trivia question related to either the topic of the, the episode that we had the guest on or, you know, the guest's okay. research. Oh no. I'm going to be so a be in a way when we had you on the show, we discussed an article that talked about Winston Churchill's grammar school. Remember that Winston Churchill's grammar school. Okay. Now, uh, and it, and it discussed, uh, Winston Churchill's grammar teacher was a Mr. Somerville, Mr. Robert Somerville. I want you to guess, I'm going to give you multiple choice. What was the name of the grade school where Mr. Robert Semerville himself studied in the English town of Kendall in 18, until 1865? Okay. So this is multiple choice. Okay. Option A, the Old Boys Association of Stramengate. Option B, White Knights Elementary. Oh, no. Option C, Heron Hill. Oh, my God. I love the white knights one that's yeah so, that's uh, a little on the nose i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna go with that because it's in the middle and it's also got white in it and it's got to be probably right white's usually right when we're talking about british people that's final right. answer <laughs> is white knights elementary yeah okay i'm sorry it's to not, oh i knew it, oh. it it was the old boys association of Stramingate, which i think is still pretty on the nose <laughs> pretty, that's pretty, pretty white that's pretty white yeah very much so <laughs> when we talk about old boys yeah there's yeah. uh yeah. It's, it's pretty uh, clear signaling there yeah, that oh, is, yeah for sure oh wow Oh, that well, was a good got question. Close. Got, <laughs> got close. Yes. <laughs> well, you will you will still get a, a prize for participating uh, that we'll uh, discuss my, later. <laughs> my, my prize is always getting a chance to talk with you guys. So, oh, my goodness. Uh, Asao, it is, it is always such a treat to talk with you. Yeah. Uh, and thank you so much for being with us this yeah. evening. It's been yeah, wonderful. my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me back. And and uh, keep doing the great work. This is a, it's a wonderful podcast. Thank so. you so much. Thanks, we Asao. really appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Have a good evening. Take care. Thanks. You too. You all have a great one. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Oh my goodness. So much fun talking with us. So much fun. He's, yeah. He's one of my favorites. Oh man. That was a good trivia question too, Calvin. Did you, how deep you. did you have to dig in order to find that answer? I was Googling Robert Somerville, who was oh. Winston Churchill's grade school teacher. And gotcha. I just, you know, I just did some research. Excellent. Uh, the internet's but, a crazy, crazy place. But were all the schools that you listed real or did you make them up two of them were real i made okay. up white knights elementary that's, <laughs> okay. that's what i wanted to know yeah no that was a good that was a good fake out though clearly i mean it yeah it, you got him you got him with the curveball so mm -hmm. <laughs> all right well we should let our uh, next guest uh, in from the waiting room here so i will uh let him in now there he is can you hear us oh i think he's still connecting to audio here oh there Hello? he is Hi, Kendall. Hello, hello. How are oh, you all hey, doing? Kendall. Great to see hello. you. Yeah, great to, to see hear you. Too. What yes. lovely faces you all have. Oh, likewise. Oh, Thank yeah. you so much for oh, being here. No one's us. ever said that before. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I tell people like, I study true. horror because I look at it in the mirror every morning. <laughs> oh, hey, no. Get out of here. Yeah, ah, come on. Come on. Well, so so for those of you who aren't familiar. Sound for that. Oh, shoot. Yeah, that's right. What was the. Yeah. What was the what, what sound oh, effects should I have used there? Oh, yeah. Shoot. I'm just going to start doing them myself. Yeah, you should. I, I didn't have yeah, my goofy do my goofy sound. I'll do all of them. Come on, man. There we go. That was my. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, so for those of you who don't know already, uh, we are uh, proud to be joined by Kendall uh, R. Phillips uh, from Syracuse University here. Uh, Kendall was uh, back. Uh, we had a Halloween episode. I believe it was in 2019 that we had you on for. Uh, where we were discussing uh, your chronology of writing about uh, rhetoric, culture, and horror, uh, and the role that horror cinema plays within all of that. Um, so I believe uh, Ben has a question for you, so I will go ahead and pass it on over to Ben. Yeah, sure. So, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the, the conversation you all had last and just some of the recent trends in cinema that you've noticed. I know you have a new book project coming up, so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that and yeah, just what you're thinking about and uh yeah, no what... you know academics never like to talk about their projects that are coming <laughs> shoot the, that's the our whole interview entirely about that, no, i'm thrilled to talk. <laughs> okay, thank <good>. you <laughs> absolutely happy to talk so i have a little book that will be coming out sometime once the production people are actually it's mainly the copy editors showing me that i don't know what a comma is or where to put it that's pretty much <laughs> 99% of what I get, the, the, I'm, I'm humbled on a daily basis, but no, never more so than when the copy editor hands me back the fact that I don't understand how MLA works. But mm. so I have a book coming out from uh, Paul Grave, uh, probably titled, unless marketing decides to change it, uh, A Cinema of Hopelessness, The Rhetoric of Refusal in 21st Century American Film. And so the, the gist of the part of one chapter is about horror. There's a chapter about uh, the movie Joker. Some of you might remember that little film that came out under the wire, no one heard of it. Uh, and then a little uh, <laughs> thing called the Marvel Cinematic Universe, also very indie. I think uh, Stanley Kubrick Obscure. did some of it. Martin <laughs> Scorsese directed most of those films. Yeah, he did. Inside Joker, yeah. <laughs> and has had lots to say about them. Had yes. lots, he's big out there promoting it. So, so anyway, sorry, uh, enough nonsense, Phillips. Uh, so the book is basically about what I think has been a trend in popular American cinema since uh, at least 2008 or so, uh, which is the kind of uh, the ways in which negative affects, which is frustration with the system, anger at the system, feeling betrayed, uh, have coalesced around what I'm calling kind of the fantasy of refusal, by which I mean not simply a revolution, but a no more, like scorched earth, burn the system to the ground. So in horror, I, I look at films like uh, The Purge, uh, and then Cabin in the Woods, which is a great example of that. And also not quite horror, but kind of dark science fiction, uh, Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer, which some of the, a lot of people missed when it came out, but has kind of come back into popularity now that there's a TBS TV show. Um, oh, but I think, it's, I think it's a slightly different variation than the traditional kind of apocalyptic horror, uh, because it's, it's really focused on the system being evil and corrupt and wrong. And it's not that we need to survive it, but we just need to refuse it entirely. And so I want to think about how that fantasy has played out, which I think has played out literally on the steps of the Capitol building uh, not that long ago. Wow. 
Yeah, well said. Um, I think that that's, I mean, that that is really fascinating because I mean, they're, I, from what I seem to remember, the the early 2000s were kind of marked by, and maybe this was something that that you can correct me on if this was something that was occurring more in the 90s, uh, that it was more of a, I mean, the zombie apocalypse uh, uh, genre. Oh, I mean, obviously, I'm talking in Pittsburgh. I mean, this starts with, you know, <laughs> people who are not very far away from where we are, uh, but it starts to gain a lot of popular, uh, uh, that, that survival element gained a lot of traction in the 2000s. But now, yeah, moving more towards refusal, I mean, I guess, what would you say are some of the landmark films that that you could that we could maybe point to as as really uh, embodying that gesture? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, I, I would say for me, I think you're absolutely right. Post 2000, we're in a kind of phase of grief. And so zombies are there. But I, I locate, maybe not rightly or wrongly, uh, Occupy Wall Street. And so I kind of talk about what I call the post Occupy cinema. And, and I think of Occupy as not just being that movement in uh, Wall Street and other cities, but the Tea Party and the beginnings of Brexit and the rising of kind of populist nationalism, all that sort of stuff happening. Um, so again, for me in films like uh, The Purge, which is all about the government system being evil, um, Cabin in the Woods, which is all about uh, people being willing to be sacrificed to keep the system going and what happens if you just say, no, I don't wanna be sacrificed. <laughs> um, but even beyond that, you know, uh, films like uh, uh, The Hunger Games, I mean, like literally every YA dystopian movie that came out was all about some evil corrupt them and they must be destroyed, not reformed, not changed, but just completely refused and something entirely different coming out after it. Um, and, I, and for me, I think even a film like Joker plays around with that kind of the, simultaneously the impulse to burn the system to the ground and the kind of depressing realization that you can't really do that, right? There's, no, there's not really an out. There's no exit door for this system. Um, so that, that I think is, for me, that's one of the trends that's been interesting in the last decade. And I think it's it kind of, we see it in our political discourse as well. People talked about electing Trump as throwing a Molotov cocktail into the system. Uh, and we quite literally have now seen the flames of that. And, and wh where you go after that, that, that's the tough question for us now. Yeah, I know that a, a film that came up in our last discussion was the the film Us, um, oh, yeah. by Jordan Peele, and 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 I wonder if you have any thoughts on that as part of this this trend towards um, cinema of hopelessness. Does it fit into that, or or is it a, a different trend? No, I I think it does. I think Get Out as well. I mean the 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 horror films that pull back the veil and say all of this system of privilege and life that you live in is undergirded by this suffering. And Get Out touches that, but Us really dives in, which is probably why Us was not as popular because it dove too far into the, the brutal reality that for every one of us sitting in our houses, looking at our computers with our lights on, we are living on the suffering of a person who did not deserve to be on the other end of that spectrum. Uh, but here That's we right. are. And I think, again, you know, it's not like these are radically new and anybody watching can say, but what about the films of the 70s and Logan's Run and Soylent Green and blah, blah. So, you know, there's nothing fun about saying something's new or that it's right. not new, but the iteration of it that's happening in the kind of 21st century America, I think really coalesces, or as I argue in the book, echoes from these political manifestations that happened around 2008 with, you know, uh, after Barack Obama, and then you get the Occupy Wall Street, you get the rise of the Tea Party, just this coalescing of different ends of the political spectrum all saying the system doesn't work right mm. wow. definitely 
You know, I think about uh, what Margaret Atwood said. It may have been in an interview, right? But she talks about every dystopia, there's a little utopia inside of it, right? So I wonder in your examination and thinking about this rhetoric of refusal, there is this gesturing or move toward what seems to be a critical perspective. So I wonder, even though you're looking at these negative affects, is is there a, a semblance of hope or, or something that we might look to in these films as well that isn't so foreboding or, or ominous, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think, so the kind of opening chapter looks at these three films, uh, Cabin in the Woods, and if, if you haven't seen it, I recommend it. Uh, as much as it's fun metatextual, if you, if you look at it from the perspective of refusal, it's kind of the most apocalyptic total final refusal. I mean, in the end, a giant ancient God's hand wipes you know, the, the screen away. So, I mean, it's like refusal just, okay, game over. The Snowpiercer, if you haven't seen that, you know, it, it also ends with the giant train crashing and seemingly all human life being extinguished, except the few survivors who at the very end of the film look up and see this polar bear walking along in, a, in the frozen tundra that they were told had no life left. And so there's that inkling of hope. But my favorite of those three films, and I recommend people go back and watch the original Purge, Ooh. is that you get this, in the Purge, you get this horrible night, this family is threatened and invaded and et cetera, et cetera. And when it's finally over, like they've survived the night, the end, the purge night is over this, this period of lawlessness. They know that it's just 12 months until it comes back. Yep. To me, that is, I really think the purge is a powerful echo of that sense of, I guess I'd call it almost revolutionary hopelessness. Like we can rebel against the system, but it's almost like Nietzsche's eternal recurrence. The world <laughs> ends and tomorrow morning, there it is again, right? So right. I feel like that frustration has been building with the sense that this doesn't work, but I can't imagine what would be not this. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, that is really fascinating to think about. I mean, I know we, we, we should move on shortly here, but I did also, I really had a burning question because I really wanted to know how the Marvel Cinematic Universe figures into a rhetoric of refusal. If you could talk very briefly about what, what exactly does Marvel have to do with all of this? It might not have anything to do okay. with this. Good for, I mean, you know, hey, that's for the editors to decide. In, I'll yeah. write about anything, right? Uh, I mean, no. So one of the things I, I wanted, I thought was, here's what I thought was interesting about the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that as much as it is, it, so it's about the opposite side of this, right? It's mm -hmm. about not the victims or the villains as with Joker, but it's about the people who, who save it. And yet, if you watch closely, what I found particularly was the complex narratives around the notion of trust. Uh, and so if you think, again, if you're a Marvel fan, if you're not, you know, go watch something else and I'll be done in a second. You can hear more interesting guests <laughs> in a few moments. But uh, if you look at like the Captain America, the Winter Soldier, like it literally ends with burning the National Security Administration to the ground. Like it crashes, they dump out in this kind of great Edward Snowden uh, manner, all the secrets of S.H.I.E.L.D. They burn the entire apparatus to the ground. So the, the films are filled with betrayal and mistrust, betrayal by the government, mistrust of the government, mistrust of each other. And so for me, the, the culminating moment, the kind of the core of the book ends with Infinity War, which I still say as much as it's easy to be cynical and as much as most of us went to see Infinity War knowing that it was just the next, there was gonna be another chapter, it wasn't all gonna end. When that final moment happened and, and the bad guy wins, I still, I still remember the audiences when I first saw it reacting 
Chew. I mean, I remember the first time I saw it, and there's that moment where Thanos is smiling and the, the screen goes black, blank. The, someone in the audience screamed out, what the fuck, right? I mean, you know, sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but anyway, it, it was like, people were like- Our stream just got uh, parental. It's, it got we, totally, we, are, we already said it's not for kids. I already checked that box. The, we're fine, we're fine. Fudge, <laughs> kids, what the fudge? Totally allowed. I think PG-13, I'm, around, I'm allowed one fuck. Oh, no, that's too Right, right. Oh, well, that's you were using it as an example, so that's- That was an was, example, but- um, so you're you know, quoting somebody else. I was so it's not me. Right. Totally in a story. <laughs> so I mean, I think I think as much as Marvel is, you know, this triumphant heroes of the norm. If you look back, I think one of the part of what made them so appealing was that they were flawed, that they were betrayed, that they didn't trust each other, and in the end, they failed. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of Infinity, they utterly failed. And so back to Ben's question, for me, the kind of conclusion of the book turns to Endgame as what could be a path out of despair. And I find interesting resonance between the, this is going to sound really weird, but the rhetoric of Avengers Endgame and the Joe Biden campaign, right? Oh, Build Back Better is essentially exactly what Endgame was, right? Go back in time, get the stuff, come back, build, and then try to be better. I mean, I, oh, I feel like that kind of nostalgic reversal, we can go get the good stuff, bring it here and make something new. That's exactly what Joe Biden did. And it was successful. And I think there, on, there was man. also... Sorry, I had, on, to, I had to drop that in. There was also, Kendall, I don't know if you're aware of this, like a consulting company that worked on Biden's campaign that recommended he actually use like the political Avengers, like the Democratic okay. Avengers as a frame in their messaging. I don't know if they actually did it, but the idea was that, yes, Joe has won the primary, but it's not just him. It's all of your favorite heroes from the primary. Well, like that uh, video that video that was edited with all the you guys know what i'm talking about oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Dems, right, yep. Yep. Oh, right. My so Lord. this was so this was very much a conscious strategy to do what you're saying yeah and, yeah. and it worked and i think it worked in part because the marvel cinematic universe had captured that feeling of failure and betrayal and and what it was like to watch the entire government system fall apart and fail and then that underlying desire but we want to see the good part come back and then that's mm -hmm. what biden represented and i think the the trump campaign kind of leaned into the idea that that he was thanos i don't think there was any effort to i mean there was never an effort <laughs> in the true. trump rhetoric to say no no we're going to build something new it was just like yeah tough what are you going to do about it and so yeah, we, right. we saw how it played out and i'm going to snap yeah. my fingers and then four hundred thousand americans sorry that's 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 that was, i should that was, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Cut that. That was all. Yeah, we'll cut, cut that. that. Sure. It's a live stream, sure. but we'll still cut Sorry. it. Sorry. Sorry. We'll still cut um, it somehow. Yeah. Uh, so, Kendall, all night long, we've been doing uh, something. I saw. That call, I've seen it. I'm, that I'm, I'm calling. To, I, I could leave this meeting right now, young man. No, 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 no. Stay here. Stay here. <laughs> Calvin's curveball coming in. All right. Kendall Phillips, what was the name of the bar in the Monroeville Mall? where the zombie extras from George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead would get drunk after shooting. You got to pull it from thin air. The name of the bar, Dawn of the Dead, the extras, uh, they would get drunk, the zombies. I, I'm shooting. wrong. I'm going to say something like Zachary's or Zach's, but I'm sure that's absolutely right. The funny thing is earlier today, I was in a, a conference call thing for another conference with the people that run the George Romero archive really? at university of pittsburgh if no only way. benjamin was here i could oh. say ben you know this and he would you yeah, could you use could your phone a friend <laughs> you could phone, could a, I, friend. Could I phone a friend hold on 
Adam? It's kind of a weird mixed metaphor that we have going on with the curveball and the I was just going to say, and the who wants to be a millionaire. <laughs> okay, I don't know, Calvin. Show me up. I, I resign right. as a horse. Is, the answer is the Brown Derby. The Brown Derby. The Brown and Derby. one night, one night, a drunk couple stole a golf cart and crashed it into a marble pillar, causing $7,000 worth of damage. So it was chaotic. Oh, in wow. the Monroeville Mall when they shot that movie. <laughs> Which was twice their budget right there, blown out by yeah. a pillar. Oh, was. my gosh. Well, oh, I, I apologize. I want to apologize to the Academy <laughs> as a whole. I'm going to hand back all $35 of royalties I've made off my books and uh, <laughs> good. bury myself over. in a hole. That's great. It's, it's all over. So go home. Thanks, Kendall. We love you. You're very special. <laughs> Sorry. that was I, I had to throw that one in there as well. Well, <laughs> I'm just thank glad you. you told me I was special. I feel good. <laughs> you did. Yes, you are, Kendall. No, and we we want to say again, thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute joy uh, to talk to you always. Uh, we really appreciate you being here to help us celebrate our third anniversary. It's It's been wonderful having you. I'll see you in three more years. Sounds good. Right. <laughs> Excellent. At year six. All right. Take care, Kendall. Thank Thanks. you. Oh, man. That's so interesting to hear about that bar from... <laughs> The, the, the brown dead. derby yeah fascinating like the captain's mean, curveballs are the true yeah, star of true. this show truly like, truly it's got to be I'm glad I, i'm glad i could contribute absolutely absolutely for once, <laughs> for once. <laughs> for once. I know. yeah exactly <laughs> i do nothing for this show <laughs> that's right well we've got our we've got our next guest uh joining us here uh hi there cameron sorry we're a little late in uh in joining no you problem here. yeah we got caught up hey cameron <laughs> So yeah, so great to see you. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Of course. Of course, my pleasure. Oh, I'm introducing Cameron, right? Oh, I should. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sophie, <laughs> Sophie, I will I will let you take it away. Be quiet, Alex. Um, well, we are very honored and happy to have Cameron Mozafari with us, a dear friend of the show. And um, in case you didn't remember, uh, Cameron uses methods of corpus linguistics to analyze emotional appeals and other rhetorical patterns in presidential speeches. And the last time that we had Cameron on the show, um, we discussed his Trump COVID-19 corpus project, um, which is focusing on, as you might imagine, right, the Trump administration statements of surrounding COVID-19. But we wanna take that in a different direction today and ask you about something a little bit more recent. Um, still still talking about rhetoric and violence, but in, in kind of a new way, um, with a special respect to current far-right people in Congress. Um, and you may recall, um, recently in the news, we saw Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene using an American flag to bully a member of Congress with who has a transgender child. There was a video she posted on her social media of her like hanging up this American flag sort of as like a, a gotcha or a rebuttal to another congressperson hanging up a trans a trans flag. Um, so what we wanted to chat with you about today, if you're game, um, is to ask you how this new cadre of far right Congress people inciting violence through their rhetoric we wonder if you kind of think of this as a continuation of Trumpian rhetoric or if what we're seeing now in the post-Trump era is different. What are your... I, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really good question. I, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I wasn't prepared for this question, but I, I, in, my, in my feelings, it's a, it's a continuation of this kind of like politics of resentment, right? There's this kind of like feeling that people have developed from feeling resent resentment and this this entire culture right so there's this um I, it was a new york times piece i think that said like the trump rally is a is a rally of love and hate and it's like I, I love you because we hate the same person 
right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, mm -hmm. it's this like really interesting way of, of thinking about yourself as a political agent, but also distancing yourself from being a political agent, right? And you, you kind of see that in the, 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 the stuff that was happening in the Capitol too, where you have all these people who are running around with their, their, their phones, taking like Instagram photos and stuff like that, as if they're not like incriminating themselves, as if they're not, you know, right. part of, they're, they're, they're so detached, right? Because it's, it's this feeling of, of resentment, right? They're the people in charge. I have no, no presence there and they know that, right? So I think that as far as like for, for Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, she's a piece of crap, uh, <laughs> uh, but I think that she, 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 doesn't, she doesn't strike me like how a lot of people are, are kind of um, unsettled by her. I mean, I've, I've heard this transphobic rhetoric my whole life, right? I mean, I, I, it's, not, it's not news to me. Um, and mm -hmm. she represents a large population of Americans who have similar sorts of beliefs. And they will, you know, she, she hit, hung that sign that said, um, what was it like, trust the science, right? Um, there are two genders, trust the science. And it's just like, oh yeah. So, I mean, science is convenient for you whenever you decide um, <laughs> you're gonna believe Never mind it. the fact that science doesn't really point to there being a binary gender division no, at all. No, of course like, not, of course not. But it is <laughs> weird how it's like selectively like, now we care about science. It, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, so it, she's she's a, um, a a QAnon truther. She's like a, um, believes in uh, the the world is four thousand years old or whatever. Like she's 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 obviously not trusting the science, but there's this double speak that's going on, right? This this kind of like this thing that comes out of resentment. I'm going to use your own kind of language against you, right? This this kind of um, idea of like like the the um, what was it? Uh, Trump had the 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 thing, what was it? It was like the Million Man March, but it wasn't the Million Man March. The Million, million Maga March. Yeah, million Maga March, right. Oh, yeah, it's, it's just like, it's it's trolling, you know? It's, it's trolling the libs and and I guess that's, that's an identity, maybe? I don't know. Um, yeah. So go home. We yeah. love you. You're very special. Sorry, that's just it's it's a it's a it's evergreen for some of these things. I mean, sorry, Sophie, you were I didn't mean to. Say no, 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 no. You go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was only going to ask because yeah, I've been noticing something kind of similar as well in the sort of like not even just the appropriation of this uh, of the, but almost this sort of like hyper determination of. Uh, this sort of like ownage politics or trying to get into the weeds of the uh, uh, like the cancel culture discourse now that Trump is out of office. The most recent example being, I know I saw a few people tweeting about this today. Apparently people are getting up on, like conservatives are getting up on their high horse about uh, the Dr. Seuss uh, family <laughs> basically like retracting several of his books because they contain racist caricatures and like some really horrible language in there. Um, and they're all saying like, this is cancel culture that's doing it as if it was not actually the 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 Seuss uh, family that is uh, themselves retracting the books and yeah, amazingly I'm... they've driven they've driven the sales way up on yes. Amazon <laughs> for, for all of the Dr. Seuss books that are still available yeah it's I mean it's a really interesting point I mean there, there's a lot to say about cancel culture and how that's been turned into some kind of like scary weapons were the right <laughs> but yeah. um and also i mean on, on the left as well so it's I, the, the liberal left i should say um um <laughs> not the left left but like there's <laughs> there's this uh uh strange thing that happens right where it's like you know um far-right conservatives alt-right people will go out and do some like really crappy things right they'll go out and, and um uh, say really terrible things deny um 
people's genders. They'll uh, say to, uh, so Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, um, uh, uh, is uh, thinks that Sandy Hook was a false flag. Um, that thinks that the Parkland shootings was a false flag, and she'll say this openly. Um, and then uh, when you call her out on it, she says, "Oh well, you're bullying me, right?" Uh, this is Melania Trump's uh, "Be Best" campaign, right? It's yeah. it's this idea that if if you attack me at all, no matter what I did, right? If you attack me at all, then you're the bully, right? Then you're the person who's who's infringing on me. And this is cancel culture, right? It's like, no, but you've done a terrible thing, right? Can, can you at least own up to that? And there's this irony as well of like, you know, you, you believe in free market capitalism and all these sorts of things. Like, if I don't like it, I don't have to buy it. I don't have to listen to you, right? That's... Mm -hmm. How is that not cancel culture? Right? It's it's always been there. I can turn off the TV and not listen to you, right? Yeah, that's a good point. I think we figured it out. <laughs> we solved it. We're so glad We've we had you the on the show. Got but do you do you find that there's been like a sort of like a shift at all? Like because now that Trump's not around and is not like sort of leading the you know at least the Twitter discourse. The you know he's not there anymore, and I wonder if you've noticed that like in like the absence of him being there and sort of setting the tone are, are you seeing like new patterns or new approaches or is it sort of just like kind of continuing because it seemed like a lot of it was sort of like fashioned after that same sort of style of trump which is like yeah like well well we all know what i'm talking about but like ha yeah. have you noticed there been sort of a, a shift or a difference since he's been gone I, I mean, yes. Um, I, I, it's, Twitter's been a lot more quiet, um, <laughs> in, in my circle sure. at least. Uh, but yeah, there was a, a, a study that was done. I don't remember um, who did the study, but it, uh, it said that, um, I don't remember what percentage, I'm, I'm just throwing things out there. You can <laughs> fact check me later. But yeah. uh, like conspiracy theory went like way down after Trump got got banned. And it, part of that was the the move onto Parler. But um, yeah. It's yeah. still, I mean, like it's it's still an interesting thing to to see if if people are leaving the the public sphere and entering into their own little private circles, right? Um, what does that do for the discourse? What does that do for? I mean, it, it allows for radicalization, obviously, and we, we've seen that um, with with Parker. Right. But um, one of the things that it also does is it allows for people to have conversations where they're not obstructed every two seconds, right? It's a, I don't know. I I just remember like after. Um, my friend got shot last year, which was the, the uh, episode um, where I was on the, um, the podcast for. I all I did was I, I said like um, this is like a really terrible thing that happened, and then for months and months on like on my YouTube channel, like people were like trying to find me. They were just like on my YouTube channel, on my Twitter. They would had me as friends on Facebook and just send me messages like flaming me and like posting pictures of of, of him getting shot. Um, and videos, video clips of him getting shot. And it's just like, how are you so like despicable? Like, what is wrong with you? Well, and how, how based on their own definitions, is that not cancel culture? Like bombarding you like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure. Um, I, I think that it's, it's, it's selective, right? So there's, there's this ambiguity in language, obviously, and ambiguity in construing events. Um, and for them, cancel culture has to do with them being canceled, right? It's, right. it's not... It's not uh, a, a fair definition across the board. Um, and we see that in a, in a lot of um, contexts, right? So like the various dog whistles and the plausible deni deniability that comes with that, um, we have this way of trying to, uh, <laughs> or, or uh, the alt-right has a way of trying to um, distance themselves from the things that they're accusing other people of, right? Um, or, 
or accepting the things that, um, but at the same time, you know, ex accepting the messages that they're they're trying to distance themselves from, right? It's like, no, we're not we're not racist. You're reading in racist messages to what I to to what's being said. And it's like, no, but come on, let let's be honest here. You're you're like a shitty racist. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not that subtle. No, I know. <laughs> well, and I, and I think we also wanted to check in too. Is your friend doing okay now? Um, yeah, he is. I mean, okay, um, good. Uh, it's it's a long recovery um uh, he's he's alive um he's Good. uh I, i've been in contact with him so um but yeah I, uh when you get a number of bolts in you um that's a traumatizing event and you know it's it was a traumatizing event for for a lot of people um in my community one of my dear friends um passed away she took her life uh and she was at that event um and i can only imagine that that had something to do with it um and it's it's just been it's been really difficult for for a lot of people because when you inject trauma into a community when you inject um, this this thing that like viscerally affects you uh, you know these images that that haunt you um, and these these experiences that haunt you um, it's you know it's hard right now because we we don't have contact with a lot of people um, you know we're we're all in, in in quarantine and isolation. So it's this, this really strange kind of event where we all feel like we're um, haunted alone, right? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah. No, I think- Sorry, you, to, I, sorry to get serious No, <laughs> it's all right. I mean, I think, you, I think you put your finger on something really important about not only just like the role of language and rhetoric and all this, but just, yeah, the way that affective energies are, are <laughs> kind of transmitting right now and the way that they especially can, uh, can linger with us after, after events that are extremely traumatic like that. Um, so, so thank you again for, you know, I mean, it's, it's definitely, I mean, it's, we do need to have some somber moments here too, just because Absolutely. that's, it's the situation certainly warrants. But uh, before we, uh, before we let you go here, Cameron, I want to pass it over to uh, Calvin, who has something a little lighter to, uh, to play us out on here. Cameron, it's time for another Calvin's curveball. <laughs> there you go. All right. Cameron Mozafari. Uh, when we had you on last, we talked about your Trump COVID corpus. So I have a question for you based on that data. Between March 14th and May 29th last year, how many times did Dr. Deborah Burks use the word science in public statements as collected in your Trump COVID corpus? This is a multiple choice answer. Here are your choices. A, one time. B, five times. C, 20 times. Or D, 50 times. I would guess science. 20 times? Is that your final answer? 20 my, times? My final answer, yeah. I'm sorry, Cameron. <laughs> it's not 20 times. Uh, it was five times. Only five, five times. times. Wow. Oh my God. I went through and I collected there, you know, the metadata was a little uh, a little inconsistent. I collected every Burks that I could. <laughs> and I only got five science. The wow. word science, five times. Um, I'm, I'm surprised, but uh, I guess I shouldn't be. <laughs> it was not wow. a very science-friendly administration. Uh, certainly despite, was not. Despite <laughs> what Fauci tried to do. I, I guess, you know, this administration is all for science now. Science is... Uh, oh, yeah. Geez. Science is back in charge. That's right. <laughs> science is They're back saying it many in more times than five More and times. more people are saying it. Come on, man. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, well, thanks, Cameron. Yeah. Once again, Cameron, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a joy, a pleasure to have My you with pleasure. us as always. One of our biggest fans of the show. I think I can safely say that. I can uh, also you, say that. <laughs> you, you are you are truly a wonderful uh, light in all of our lives. So thank you very much for being here tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. You, all right. Cameron. Take care, Cameron. Always, always such a treat to get to talk to the Cameron. Best. Yeah, the best, the best. Well, and speaking of someone who's always wonderful to talk to, uh, we've got our final guest of the evening uh, joining us in here in just a moment. We've got Anna Cook. Hi, Anna. Hello. Hey, Anna. hey, guys. It's so good to see you. It's oh, so good gosh. to see you, too. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Um, yeah, I miss I miss you folks. We we never hang out anymore. It's really me. <laughs> yeah, why so. can't we do that? Why, yeah, we, should do, we should do something about that. <laughs> um, and you should know if uh, that Lucy, who is sitting right here next to me, I have to show you because um, it's like the equivalent of me. There's Lucy. She came. She wanted Aww. Uh, she keeps asking me when when are we going to hang out with Calvin and Elena again? She wants to know <laughs> when. Well, she Elena, Elena, and so. I both both miss her, so it's, yeah. it's mutual. Yeah, um, but, um, and it's nice to meet you, Ben. I don't think we've met before, so. And nice to meet you as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, I guess you guys didn't cross paths. It's crazy. No. Time flies. Oh, it does. Oh. It's it's bananas. Well, we're so glad to have you here. Um, when we talked to you last on the show, you were just finishing up your dissertation on knowledge making on Wikipedia. Um, but that has since developed into a broader project on online knowledge making communities. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the project and some of the other case studies you're looking at. Sure. Um, oh boy, talking about my project. <laughs> project. Um, yeah, so, uh, so my dissertation was focused around kind of looking at how uh, knowledge about global warming and kind of then controversies around global warming and climate change um, uh, were represented in Wikipedia and kind of changed over time. Um, and since then, I've kind of brought, so I, I'm, you know, doing a book project um, and kind of building from the findings of my dissertation, um, looking at how, uh, how different processes basically that shape um, or that I see as kind of key rhetorical and discursive processes um, that we might use to um, kind of document how online communities shape knowledge <clears throat> in relation to controversies that might be viewed as um, sort of related to or stemming from kind of expert discourses or sort of building from expert discourses. Um, so um, I have kind of a few different cases and, and different examples. Um, one of the cases that I was back channeling with Calvin about earlier this week is about um, online communities that talk about um, the diagnosis complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, Another one that I've been kind of looking into more recently is, uh, so there's a, a couple, two different ones that I'm kind of been toying around with and, and, and trying to integrate. One is about um, cultural Marxism and how online communities kind of uh, engage in like a, a particular kind of reading practice of Marxism when they use cultural Marxism to as like a sort of critique. Um, and another is about kind of controversies around uh, the biological basis of gender and how that 
relates to the way different communities uh, interpret texts, um, build categories, kind of engage in um, sort of knowledge making practices uh, based on kind of circulating expert texts and then interpreting them in particular ways. So I just spoke for a really long time. <laughs> I hope, hope that gave a little bit of a uh, uh, an overview. But. No, that's awesome. I, I'm, I'm particularly uh, interested in the cultural Marxism uh, case. I mean, yeah, same here. What, what I think is funny about that one is that, I mean, my, you know, my sort of like a layperson's reading of how that uh, concept gets talked about online is like, usually when that phrase is being used, it's entirely pejorative. Um, and it's, it's almost more of just a, uh, a negative ideograph or a slogan of, of the thing that, that you hate. And so, but if you're talking about a reading practice, it sounds like there's actually, they're engaging with some Marxist text. Mm -hmm. Well, some of, some of them do in particular online communities. It's interesting because, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to kind of track is how different communities kind of establish and enact different ways of relating to texts. Like what kind of texts are legitimate to talk about, how you can read them, how you kind of collect texts. Um, so I also like sort of see cultural Marxism as often being used as pejorative, Calvin. I think that's, that's pretty right. Um, and that representations that kind of argue for it are blending um, like particular kind of uh, framings of Marx, Marxists, uh, Marxist critique um, and kind of also bringing in more contemporary um, experts or academics who have popularized the term cultural Marxism like Jordan Peterson and those two together kind of function as you know to build kind of ethos around this this is something that exists right so um, it's you know one of those interesting cases because I think they're not necessarily engaging with explicitly Marxist scholars or contemporary scholars who study Marxism or engage in sort of critical Marxist thought, they're, they're uh, framing historical, uh, you know, readings of Marx and then drawing in people who sort of use this term, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I, to, to that <laughs> end, I, I kind of, uh, oh, sorry, Sophie, did you, did you say something? I couldn't hear. Oh, never mind. Sorry, I'm just hearing things. <laughs> no, I I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask you, Anna, about um, yeah, to that and specifically on cultural Marxism and Jordan Peterson. If you were, and I don't want to get too much into the weeds of this, but if you'd ever watched the uh, the uh, Peterson uh, Zizek debates, have you have you watched that yet? No, I have not yet. Um, I know that I should, but I haven't yet. Again, I'm just kind of getting into understanding the the, the case, and you know, there's a lot of Jordan Peterson's stuff out there, then okay. it can kind of turn into a little bit of a black hole, but sure. um, yeah. Well, and I don't want to be another one of those guys who's like, oh, you got to see this YouTube video. This thing <laughs> no, is so I, ultimate. This is the, <laughs> I appreciate the rack. I, I'll check it yeah. out. Well, yeah. I mean, the only thing that jumped out to me was that you had talked about this being a kind of reading practice. And in that debate, I mean, the whole entirety of Peterson's first opening salvo is giving basically a, a list of logical fallacies that he found in the Communist Manifesto, which is kind of, I mean, there was this weird like epistemic clash when you could see Peterson yeah. and Zizek on the stage together where, you know, Zizek started talking and it was like on a whole entirely different level from what Peterson was arguing about. And I wonder the extent to which 
which I mean, this has something to do with like, you know, online communities being kind of like insular so that when you actually come face to face with somebody, uh, you know, who comes from like a different epistemic background, I think this is hugely influential in the uh, like biological or social notions of gender as well, uh, that there is this kind of like that there is an epistemic conflict that's at the root of it. Uh, I wonder if that's I mean, if you've seen that occurring in other kinds of cases that you've looked at. Yeah, well, that's kind of what I'm trying to get at that that understanding some of the sort of differences in epistemic conflicts is I think we have, um, you know, painting with problematic. Are you glad we're not living in one of those communist countries? I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> that is, I'm screwing worked, up, actually. screwing up on the soundboard <laughs> once yeah, again. Um, sorry. But, uh, <laughs> No, that was perfect. There's an Good epistemic time. conflict <laughs> between. I think it was an epistemic troll. Pal. It was. Interesting. I typed a number um, on my keyboard and it made a sound. So. Um, um, so obviously there's been a lot of recent sort of public commentary and work about and um, hand wringing and about kind of how online communities distort knowledge, you know, whether it's we're talking about the death of the expert or extremism or fractionalization or um, and, and certainly or disinformation and misinformation and certainly those phenomena exist. Um, and we have in some ways like started developing robust ways of talking about how some of those practices work, but not necessarily looking at how different communities are really they're not just kind of um, disingenuously trying to distort knowledge from the, from the academy to like, you know, to deliberately deceive people, but there are actually some interesting sort of conflicts in how they approach knowledge making, how they think about a textual interpretation that underscore like what happens in terms of the knowledge that they create. Um, you know, I think I'm a little, I feel a little worried about the way that it, suggests a legitimation of things like like cultural Marxism because it does get used as a pejorative term but I do think that there's there's an argument to be made about kind of understanding why people get to different kinds of conclusions or even sort of in like use texts like there's a difference between using a text as a way to interpret the world or explain something versus using a text to bolster a belief that you already have, right? And I think we can kind of, we need to start thinking about how some of that works in a little bit more of a detailed way. So I'm kind of gesturing in that direction by looking at some, how it works in different cases. Yeah. Awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah thank you so much. Um, well, so I, Go ahead. Oh, I don't oh know. no no no! Oh no no no! You you go ahead, Anna, because <laughs> I think the you were, floor is yours. You were going to lead into probably what I was going to as well. Well, I didn't know. Um, I don't. I know we're coming up on so coming up the end of the time, but I did want to. Um, you know, uh, I did want to kind of. Honestly, I'm just trying to avoid Kelvin's curveball, so I take control of this <laughs> oh, yeah. conversation. It's still coming. It's still cannot escape um, You can't avoid it. But. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I was I was actually listening to one of the earliest conversations that we had because I was, you know, sort of involved somewhat a little bit. Uh, and, and, and yes, you were. Oh, you big big time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, we had that conversation. Uh, I think it was it might have been our first in the first episode about um, kind of why a rhetorical podcast and what is the value of the humanities and what is the value of kind of this kind of form of public scholarship. So I would love to hear 
you know, the reverb editorial teams take on that question now? Like, what, what do you see as the value of what you're doing? How has that changed over time in the last few years? Um, you know, how does it relate to your work? What tips do you have for people who want to be the next reverb or follow in your excellent footsteps about how to do this well? Thanks, Anna. Really appreciate it. That's very kind. <laughs> Thank you, um, Anna. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I I think we should all probably get a chance to answer this one. Um, yeah. I mean, Ben, Ben, do you maybe want to get us started? Sorry, I'm gonna go ahead and and throw off the responsibility of answering first now. <laughs> Well, you know, I think it's a question I think about quite frequently as an educator, right? And, you know, so often you're in front of this classroom and you're, you're really curious about the value of this, right? And you're thinking, what is the material difference that you're making in a student's life? And with rhetorical criticism or thinking about criticism more generally, for me, I think it's engendering moments of insight or potential for insight in the same way that you do in a classroom setting. So a podcast just becomes the space where you can engage in a broader conversation and think with and think through problems and, you know, develop insights together, right? It, it does become this collaborative space and there's so much potential and opportunity to think together. Right. So that's what a podcast is to me. And that's what the humanities are to me, too. Beautiful. That's beautiful. That's awesome to hear, too, because I remember that one of the things that we were thinking about when we started Reverb was how it could be a space that didn't just seem to be kind of popularizing scholarship. Like this was where scholars explained how things work to a public, that kind of problematic dynamic. So it's Great to hear. And I, I agree, you know, as a, as a viewer and listener, um, that it's more collab, that it's sort of, you see it as more collaborative than that. I, I do too. Um, and I think that was part of our ethos starting out. I don't know, Alex and Calvin and, and Sophie can correct me, but. No, I think you're definitely right. I mean, Sophie, do you want to, do you want to go ahead and, and say a few words here as well? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously I'm coming at this slightly differently from everybody else here because I'm not, I don't have PhD and I'm not working on a PhD, but I think that there is like a lot of value in having something like this that's like, can kind of be in two worlds, right? Like you don't have to be pursuing a PhD in rhetoric to be able to appreciate the conversations that we have on Reverb. And I think that we make a concerted effort to not necessarily like just popularizing research, but just, you know, talking about things that matter to people. And I think, you know, there's nobody who's invested in the humanities that doesn't deeply care about these conversations and these things happening. So I think that, um, you know, I love podcasting as a medium. I think it's very accessible and it's a great way to like bring people into a conversation that if it were happening only in a classroom or only in a journal, they would feel like that is not for me. Um, but you don't have that same kind of stigma around a podcast. And so I think it's a good way to, to, you know, open up the world of this academic conversation to people who are not in it, but also invite people who aren't operating in those circles to still be part of it in a meaningful way. And to me, that's, I think, the, the thing I'm very proud about this show for doing. Yeah, I feel that. Uh, feel as you should be, sense. as you should be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can, I can piggyback back off that because like, I, I totally agree about the kind of distinction between um, journal 
level discourse or you know academic books like just kind of academic publishing generally it tends to close off the kind of collaboration <laughs> that ben talked about and 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 just sort of like public accessibility generally and so i think something that we've really tried to stay mindful of is that we need to take time to explain concepts we need to take time to um you know, instantiate concepts with really rich and like currently relevant examples. Of course, that's biased by like what we are mad about at the time. Like I will totally admit to that. Um, but I mean, just to give an example, like the number of people who listen to this show is like orders of magnitude more than have read, you know, my my one published article, you know, or, or probably the, you know, the published work of other people on this call. And it's just, it's a way to reach more people. And I think that if you're committed to the ideas and the scholarship, that should really be what your goal is, um, not sort of prestige within certain spaces. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I do think there's a slightly um, like noble aspect to how we think about this. Uh, maybe it's a little uh, uh self-congratulatory in that regard but like i think i know lots of people who have entered into academic discourses that they wouldn't have uh without this show and then the only other thing i wanted to mention is that i also see this show as a really important way to talk about activism and to actually um mm -hmm. think about the role that these sort of highfalutin academic concepts can play in thinking through activism talking to activists. I think one of our best episodes is the episode that Sophie did with another activist, uh, you know, in the reproductive rights space. Um, and I think that, you know, doing more of that kind of content is really important for us and is something we should think about. Definitely. Yeah. I, I would, I would echo all those, all those sentiments and, and say, you know, specifically, uh, I mean, just to kind of, to go back to what Anna was talking about, I mean, I, I want to first issue a correction. Uh, Anna played a hugely foundational Massive role goal. in the creation of the podcast because, because, specifically, because it was Anna's idea to do a podcast in the first place. Uh, Derek Handley, uh, for those of you who have been listening a little bit earlier on this stream, talked about how, uh, I think it was, I can't remember if it was at a conference or my memory is that it was a, a happy hour that uh, CMU graduate students were having at the sharp edge <laughs> in pittsburgh which that rest sounds right to me Alex. yeah that yeah, yeah it was the sharp edge yep and so yeah. we you know all being a few drinks in uh you know derek <laughs> is of course cornering anna and i trying to get us to <laughs> continue the silver tongue as as a project you know this uh, the blog that was run by cmu graduate students previously uh to do written rhetorical criticism and and anna was the one who said you know what about why why don't we just do a podcast why wouldn't we just do a podcast and i remember specifically what you had said was that you wanted to you wanted to transmit the the feeling of having a really invigorating intellectual conversation over drinks and that that is that 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 is kind of like the ethos that we should strive to uh to accomplish there and i mean whether or not i mean we we obviously we've we've tried to cut alcohol out of most of our uh production uh, uh sets and everything but i think that i mean largely what what reverb has meant to me for the entire time that we've been doing it has it's always been about 
uh, it's always been about actually connecting with other people to do scholarly work because I mean, to me, it always feels so much more lonely and alienating and isolating just to have to sit in a room and write something. I mean, it can be a very invigorating social experience. You're engaging with other people's ideas somewhat implicitly, but I mean, yeah, it, it's the, the I, I don't want to go into the cliche that like the, the true meaning of the journey is the friends we made along the way, but it is like truly uh, the, the great joy of being able to do this podcast and really keep me engaged in wanting to do scholarship has been uh, the relationships that I've had with uh, my co-producers, especially, uh, but with with everybody who we've gotten a chance to connect with, um, you know, scholars, activists, uh, you know, people who have just reached out to us through emails and said that they like the show, that it feels like they are in a room having a conversation with some really good friends uh, who are talking about really, really damn interesting things. And, and I mean, I think that more than anything, that's, you know, that, that, that's what I want to do with my scholarship, uh, if if there if I could set any goal for it. So, and I want to also mention that I think Anna came up with the name. Am I yes, wrong about Anna that? Anna did come up with the name Reverb. That let that, that let this be a let the record yes. show. <laughs> yeah. You sold your social short when you came on here. I mean, I never actually generated any content, and I feel like you know I maybe brokered some stuff. Um, I did some ideation. It was really just, you know, bringing people together who would, who would uh, actually do the labor and, and make the goodness. Um, You're holding the puppet strings. You are. <laughs> our our reverb, I mean, our, our, our Squarespace website still reads, you know, the original uh, hosted one reads Anna-Cook at squarespace.com. So I does it really? It does, does it indeed. Really? It does indeed. <laughs> we, may, we may just leave it that way as a, as a memory of you being the, the cornerstone and the foundation <clears throat> of our, of our podcast so well i did wear Absolutely. my red and black and and i was going to point the, that out oh, appreciate the paint the like reverb the, color of website. thank you for the brand truly um, truly yeah but no, i think you guys have really done an excellent job doing exactly what i mean in my again humble listeners opinion of um making rhetoric and scholarly concepts um about language and culture and politics accessible and interesting and funny and you know, engaging. And, you know, I think that's one of the big hurdles for public scholars and for kind of like making, making this live is that it can be real dry. It can be real dry, you know, but you guys are, um, or you folk, um, you know, are something that I think people really can engage with and, and appreciate value. And, you know, um, I also think, that uh, I personally appreciate your selection of examples that you find funny and illustrative, Calvin. So um, I think <laughs> it's cool that you have a personality and stuff that you know you gravitate towards. But um, you know, I appreciate. So I just wanted to say that. Just so you well, know. some of them are a, it might be a little dark or you know come come across as uh, having a particular political point of view. But I think we yeah. own that. You know, yes. we're, we kind of put it right oh. out there, like. Yeah. This is how we feel about this topic. And here's an example of why, you know, yeah, definitely. Um, and so on that note, I think we have to go out where we've oh, been yeah. going out the whole show long, believe which it. is with another edition of oh, Calvin's no, Curveballs. No, no. I was just going to say the one thing you can cut out is the baseball theme. That really needs to go. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. That is not going. Oh, no. It so stays. Anna, Anna Cook. Stays. 
on a cook. We got a Calvin's curveball for you coming at you. Oh okay. All right. So this refers back to your research on Wikipedia. According to its manual of style, what is Wikipedia's policy on serial commas or Oxford commas? They believe in Oxford comma. They're you pro think, Oxford comma. You think they're pro Oxford comma? Is that your final answer? Comma. That is my final answer. That is not correct. I think you're going to find this. I think you're going to find this. So Wikipedia, what are you thinking? That is a the answer ball. is that editors may use either convention. So either ah. a serial comma or Oxford comma or none, as long as each article is internally consistent. That, okay, that's fair. That That is consistent. They're like that about a fair number of their stylistic policies. However, um, look at- I think it's a huge bummer. I, it's a tisk tisk for you because that's, that's really a detriment to, <laughs> to clarity. I agree. Oxford comma should be mandated. Yeah. So I, I guess you don't know as much about totally Wikipedia agree. as you thought. Oh, geez. Oh, I had faith, you know, I really just had faith <laughs> that they would follow and adhere to what I consider to be gold standard editorial rules. And I, I'm, I'm actually really crushed, Calvin. So well, I think you have to. Like, it's like, new, <laughs> I think you should do some new, like darker research into Wikipedia. The problems. You know, the problems I mean, with style. I would actually love, I mean, I, you know, it's not to sound terribly nerdy, but like to do like a corpus analysis of variations and like stylistic elements across Wikipedia and how they show up and why they show up. I think it would be fascinating, but uh, that'd be quite the undertaking. Lots of, lots of comma hunting. I'm not sure. I'm Let's but work on any it. Any of you want to resource that labor somebody else's will, just like you did with the podcast. Just get yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, I'm trying to plant it right now. <laughs> you guys are gonna pick up this. We're gonna get right on it, and I'll report back to you once I've done that. <laughs> Excellent. Awesome. Oh my goodness. Well, again, we can't, I don't think I could think of anybody uh, else who we would have rather uh, had to, to, to lead us out of our live stream third full anniversary circle. this evening. We brought it full circle. Uh, and Anna, thank you so much for being with us. It's been an absolute joy to talk with you as always. Thank you for having me and happy anniversary. And, you know, great job, guys. Please keep thank it. Thank you. Thanks, Anna. Thank you. All right. You. Have a good night, Anna. We'll see you later. Take care. Oh. All right. So that, that's it. So we nice. did it. That's it. We're we did yeah. It. We're done. So you have like an air horn. Oh man, yeah, I didn't. Oh man, I got to check. Get him out of here. Yeah, no. The only thing we have is. So go home. We love you. You're very special. That's that's the that's I guess the the lead out that we that we have to have. How we feel about all our listeners and all our guests. It's true. We love you all, and please go home. You're very special. No, but seriously, I mean, yeah, in a in a in a shout out to everyone who has taken the time to listen to our podcast over the last three years. Whether you are a uh, veteran listener from uh, the early days or whether or not you've just jumped on the bandwagon, uh, uh, we just want to say how much we appreciate your listenership. Uh, if you've gotten in contact with us, it means so much to uh, to be able to hear from you all. Um, this has honestly been such a great joy. Uh, I think we've all we've all been able to share in that. So thank you, uh, thank Amen. you all. Yes, thank you to all of uh, all of my co-producers here. It's been a joy uh, working with you thank all. Thank you, Alex. Oh, thank you. thanks, Alex. 
Yes. No, thank you all too. I, I, and I'm looking forward to working with you, with you all for at least three more years into the future. We, we have three to have another one of these years. three more three years, more years, three more three years. More years. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, uh, and thank you all for joining us tonight on our uh, third anniversary live stream special. Uh, first ever live stream. If you tuned in, ever. you saw history tonight. You did. You saw you did. history. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. Yeah. Hopefully we'll be doing more uh, things like this. By the way, I just have to say Cameron Mozafari dropped in the chat. Mark Davies has a Wikipedia as a corpus or has Wikipedia as a corpus on his BYU corpora page. So it is doable. Uh, awesome. Just saying we've, we've laid that we've planted the seeds. We're just waiting for someone to, to pour over some dirt, pour on some water, you know, something could happen. Whatever. Just All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's exactly right. Uh, well, from all of us at Reverb, uh, it's been an absolute joy uh, being here with you this evening. Uh, we are signing off, uh, but we hope that you have a wonderful uh, rest of your evening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Stay safe, people. Our show today was produced by Ben Williams, Alex Helberg, Calvin Pollock, and Sophie Wadzak, with editing work by me, Alex Helberg. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in. 